the fantasy zombies are here. Should we be rolling out the welcome mat or rolling it up? I'll ask Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper in the Bust podcast next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 13th. Friday the 13th, what better day to talk about zombies? It's show number 25 of the 2018 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast discussing fantasy zombies, innings limits affecting younger pitchers, his boons and banes for the rest of the season, and a whole lot more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at Sean Doolittle is headed to the DL, Matt Winters returning from the DL, and more National League news. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at the Houston bullpen with Ken Giles' demotion, some Tommy John surgery, bad news for Garrett Richards of the Angels, and a whole lot more. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon reports on San Diego outfield prospect Buddy Reed. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky looks at Houston third baseman Tyler White. And our pitcher matchup segment is back. Baseball HQ Analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Tampa right-hander Chris Archer in Minnesota to face the Twins right-hander Jose Barrios and the Yankees right-hander Masahiro Tanaka in Cleveland to face all-star right-hander Trevor Bauer, as well as some of the other weekend matchups. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about the mistakes owners make in the second half of the season. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about my first half all-value team. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? A pitcher and a position player were involved in a home run but not how you think. We gotta talk some baseball. It was Wednesday night in Coors Field, the Rockies leading the Diamondbacks 14-1 in the bottom of the fourth. The Diamondbacks brought in utility player Daniel Descalso to pitch a few innings to rest the real pitchers in the blowout. Descalso gave up a run-scoring single and a three-run homer, then closed out the inning by popping up Trevor Story and striking out Gerardo Parra. And you can bet Story and Parra heard about that from their teammates. Descalso started the bottom of the fifth getting two quick outs, bringing the opposing pitcher Herman Marquez to the plate. Here's what happened. There's a drive by Herman Marquez. Has he done it? Yes! It's gone! Touch of all time for Herman Marquez. His first big league home run. So his first home run of the big leagues comes against a an infielder. Scalzo's finding that it is difficult to pitch a course field. Yeah. Yes, the position player Descalso gave up a home run to a pitcher. Descalso finished the fifth and pitched through the sixth before giving way to Alex Avila. Descalso finished his stint with two and two-thirds innings, three earned runs, four hits, and a walk, and those two home runs including one to a pitcher, the first home run of Herman Marquez's career. 
And before we move on, I should mention that Avila got six outs on 13 pitches. And on that same night, the Reds sent Alex Blandino, a second baseman, third baseman, shortstop, right fielder, and frequent pinch hitter for the team this year, to pitch in a blowout loss to Cleveland. All Blandino did was throw a scoreless inning with one hit and flashed a 90-mile-an-hour fastball as well as a hellacious 67-mile-an-hour knuckleball. He threw 10 of 15 pitches for strikes and struck out two Cleveland hitters. Interestingly, Blandino attended St. Francis High School in Mountain View, California, the same high school as Daniel Descalso. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for having me, Patrick. How are your fantasy teams doing? You know, it's been a mixed bag this year. It really has um, pitching, I think, injuries and, and underperformance on some guys. I was big on the Luis Castillo bandwagon. Uh, has kind of limited some some upside there for, for some clubs. I will say uh, Jason Collette and I are tied for third in, in labor mix. That's, that's definitely been going well. Middle of the pack in Tout Wars head-to-head, though. Got to make a big summer run there. Uh, my main event team is plagued by... Uh, Luis Castillo, among others, is languishing in 10th. And then home leagues, uh, ranging from mid-pack, I do have one uh, in second, and then another that's uh, tracking for the playoffs and head-to-head. So we'll see how that goes. So, again, a mixed bag, but uh, I, I'm, I'm eager for the summer to kind of see how it's – I mean, I know we're already in summer, but the second half, I, I think there'll be moves to be made because I think people forget that, uh, you know, like it or not, even in, even in industry leagues, people start turning their attention to football, and if you stay diligent – you can make a lot of uh, ground up in, in August, especially. I wondered about uh, your head-to-head league. I'm interested in that because uh, a few years ago in my home league, it's an American League-only 4x4 roto, and one year we ran in parallel, we ran a, a head-to-head um, schedule, so there wasn't quite the amount of strategizing if it had been head-to-head all the way because there are things you want to do in head-to-head that you don't want to do in your regular um, in your regular uh, rotisserie format. So uh, in that way, it didn't uh, really look as much like head-to-head as it might have. But the head-to-head seemed to be closer all the way through, and it was seemed like it, there was more opportunity for teams that were lagging to make up ground, even in the shorter run we have left, what, uh, about 70 games or so. Uh, do you think your head-to-head team might have a better chance of, of being successful and moving up quickly than your uh, lagging rotisserie teams? Absolutely. I, I definitely think that uh, th- there is an avenue there. I'm kind of new to head-to-head in terms of playing it uh, more regularly these last few years. I, I was really heavy roto, uh, almost by design, almost pushing off head-to-head, but I've been more open to it. And listen, I understand the volatility of it and that it's not always the exact best team winning um, because, you know, the schedule, that you, you can't do anything to stop your opponent, but if you get lucky with the schedule, you can kind of move forward. I do think that there are gains to be made there. It does kind of keep head-to-head leagues a little bit more interesting deeper into the year because standings can stratify in a roto league to where you really don't have a chance. Like sometimes even as as uh, mid-pack is like sixth or seventh, you would normally think there's a chance, but if, they, if the standings stratify in a certain way, right. that league can be out. Now, obviously, it can go the other way, too, where a 10th-place team has a legitimate chance. But I do think roto um, can, can bury teams more than I think is given credence for because it is sort of a roto versus head-to-head discussion, particularly in the industry. I don't think roto is this like, unbeatable format that uh, automatically keeps people engaged all year. I think head-to-head probably has an edge 
in that aspect. And especially, as you said, with the influence of fantasy football, because that's almost always head-to-head. Uh, I know that uh, I, I know some guys who play in season-long rotisserie-style football leagues, but I think they're really the outliers. And when people come over, which has always been the hope in the baseball fantasy baseball industry, that young people, especially playing fantasy football, would gravitate into playing fantasy baseball. But you kind of have to expect that when they do or if they do, that they're going to come in and they're going to want to play a format with which they're more familiar, and that being head-to-head. Exactly, and I I don't think that's a problem. Again, I think there's been some kind of pushback on head-to-head to, to, you know, oh, we don't want it to be like football. And Listen, it's all volatile. It's all – there's all an element of luck. I I love testing the six months of of baseball as much as the next guy versus the 16 weeks of football, and I do think that there's – uh, more work and more skill that can go into like an in-season management, but you're still dealing with a lot of luck, and I don't think that's a bad thing to admit. That's why we play. If we knew how the results were going to go on everything, it wouldn't be worth playing. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think people should bristle at the notion of head-to-head, especially to bring more people into the game. And a lot of times I've found that I bring football people over. They play head-to-head, they enjoy it, but then they really enjoy the fantasy baseball aspect of it, and then they are more open to roto formats and, and really diving into the game uh, from that angle too. But I think both formats really have their merits, and that's kind of a new thing over the last few years where I've really embraced the head-to-head format as, as, as pretty enjoyable despite the volatility and sometimes frustration to score like the second-highest points of the week, but you faced the highest, right. so you took a log. Last question about head-to-head. Last year in the uh, Tout Wars head-to-head league, and I think they had just amended their format slightly, and you adopted a a pretty um, um, non-standard approach because of uh, some gaming opportunities that you saw in how the roster was going to be set up. Did you do the same thing this year? I didn't do the same thing this year. I, I was still pretty heavy on, on getting stud players, stud pit, uh, batters, I should say, and I, I continue to do that, but not necessarily to the degree last year where I bought uh, Trout, Arenado, Harper, Votto. Um, the, the real outlier uh, draft strategy this year was Justin Mason, who really, really stocked up on the elite pitchers to such a sharp degree that I think his top hitter, at draft was like $8 or something. I mean, it, it, it was it was very tilted that way to where he really went into the uh, into the pitching pool there. So, no, I, I, I didn't completely repeat last year's because it didn't work. So I wanted to try something uh, that maybe had a little bit better shot of working. So I balanced it out a little bit more, but I still focused primarily on premium bats and, and then kind of worked the pitching from there. But uh, – Right now it's going to be mid-pack, and Justin is in fourth, so maybe he had the right uh, the right strategy so far. And the leader, play it more or less straight? Uh, yeah, Clay Link, uh, I, I, I think you could say that. He's got more of a, more of a straight-up team, a couple anchors on the hitting side, and then some bargains that have, that have definitely turned out. You know, Xander Bogarts definitely wouldn't go for 13 again if we, if we ran it back. And frankly, I thought, even at the time, and this is not hindsight, but at the time when he got Carlos Santana in a points league, for 13, that was a, a total bargain as well. So, uh, yeah, he had some anchors on both sides and then really filled in around the edges, and he's also hit on some very nice uh, free agents. He's got Jesus Aguilar doing a lot of great work for him, uh, as I'm sure a lot of teams do, because he wasn't drafted very much. There was no real avenue to see Jesus Aguilar's playing time. So outside of an NL only or just a, you know, like 50-round draft and hold, just those deep, absurdly deep leagues, 
Jesus Aguilar is a pickup pretty much everywhere. Right, yeah. Now, I mentioned at the outset in introducing uh, you, Paul, that you host the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Uh, how often does the pod drop? We run three three times a week, once with uh, Justin and myself, the aforementioned Justin Mason. Uh, Nick Pollock and I do a Sunday fireside chat where we focus on, uh, really focused on pitchers, uh, usually just one or two. Sometimes there's a theme where we cover a few. It started because we're both Luis Castillo guys, and uh, I was like driving over from the movies one night, and I wanted to call him and, and, and kind of talk about our process of, of how we overrated him and, and if we should learn from that. And I said, you know what, let's make this a podcast, So. Sunday night is the fireside chat, and then either another one with uh, Justin and and Jason Collette or a solo pod. The, the, the third one's kind of a wild card, but the one every week is me and Justin and and Nick and myself on Sundays. But then the third one uh, can be solo or another guest episode. Having had the experience of producing and appearing on a podcast as you do, has it made you a podcast fan? Do you listen to more podcasts than you used to? Do you listen to them at all, for that matter? I actually um, came into it the other way where I listened. I've been listening to podcasts forever. Um, as far as I can, I mean, I don't know exactly when they really started to uh, go mainstream or whatever, but the, I think it was called ESPN Baseball Today. It was hosted by Alan Schwartz um, long ago. And I, that, that was one that really, really got me into podcasts. I've always been, a, I was a sports radio fan as a kid. I really enjoyed that. I would sit on hold for hours. Uh, in evenings to calling into Detroit radio to just to get off my points about the Tigers or the Lions. And so I've always been interested in the medium. I'm not so interested as much anymore in, uh, in sports radio. I think it's, it's definitely stagnated, but podcasts are, the, are the, the medium that I really love. So, yeah, I've been listening to baseball podcasts and non-baseball ones for quite a while. Um, and the fact that I do them now has not changed that at all. I still listen to a ton of podcasts, including this one. I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, I go back all the way to when they used to call it audio blogging. And then uh, when they started getting RSS so that you could automate the feed a little better, then it started to become podcasts. I think uh, it was a guy from uh, Much Music coined the phrase podcasting because it was meant to be listened to on iPods. And yeah, I listen to, I listen to geez, probably a dozen regularly and another dozen that I hear about or you know people recommend to me and stuff. I think it's a it borders on kind of the optimum way to enjoy audio content. I find audiobooks a little long sometimes, and I find them a little hard to follow. But uh, these audio magazines, which is what podcasts feel like to me, I think are really an excellent way to fill in a gap that you can't read, you can't watch TV because you're driving or mowing the lawn or something like that. I, I, boy, I, I really love the format. I couldn't agree more. And, and, and about the only thing I lament, uh, about working from home is there's no commute to kind of have that built-in time to listen uh, to podcasts. But, I've, of course, I listen anytime I'm going out uh, driving somewhere or taking my dog for a walk or just being here at, at, at my place. If I'm, not, if I'm not writing, if I'm not you know, actually trying to put the words down for an article, if I'm just doing research on stuff, I can have a podcast and, and, and be focused on it. Uh, it's definitely my preferred medium for, for anything. I don't, I don't watch as many shows because I'd rather fill that time listening to podcasts while I play video games. I'm a big uh, uh, video game fan, particularly the baseball video game. So I will listen then too. So I'm with you. I'm a thousand percent into, uh, into the format. 
Well, you and Nick, uh, you mentioned Nick Pollock as one of your co-hosts. You did a pod just the other day about fantasy zombie pitchers, and I thought it was a great hook just in the uh, in the blurb that you look at on the screen before you start listening. Uh, fantasy zombie, it caught my eye, of course. Uh, what is a fantasy zombie? I have to give credit where it's due. Speaking of podcasts, one of the first, uh, another one of the early ones, also at ESPN, the Fantasy Focus podcast, the 06010 that Matthew Barry and Nathan Rabbits did. That is their phrase. We gave them credit right out front there. We're making sure we're clear that we're not stealing, but uh, honoring, because it was a great phrase that they would talk about. These guys that just kind of rose from the dead that, that we buried. And, you know, I think it's something that we do uh, in fantasy baseball, often prematurely, maybe not with the guys that, that were mentioned on that show, but I do think it happens a lot. Once we feel like a guy is, is dead, we want to put him over there so we have one less guy to focus on. And I think probably the biggest one for that this year um, even though it was pitchers that we focused on, I'll bring up Matt Kemp is that an absolute fantasy zombie. And listen, I understand the reasons to have been skeptical on him. Uh, but then when he, you know, I know best shape of your life, all that, you got to take that with a grain of sand and, and uh, grain of salt and filter it. But you look and he was never, he's never been bad. He's actually never been a below average hitter. If you're kind of looking at the WRC plus or the OPS plus, so the fact that he did get in shape, he's 33 years old, I think, and I know it's hindsight 2020 at this point, but there probably should have been more credence given to somebody like that who's actually never really fallen to the depths of some of these players. But to be a fantasy zombie, you just have to be kind of cast aside and then, and then kind of have a rebirth. And so we talked about three pitchers who, who we felt have done that this year. You know, the, the Baseball HQ came up with this uh, idea called the 10 Steps of Alex Rodriguez or something, but this is more about uh, about prospects who come up and they're not that great, and then they kind of all the hype blows over, and then the second pass-through is when they really get good. Is there a similar sort of pattern that you've noticed with these fantasy zombie players where, you know, they, they have a bad season or two uh, or however many, they fall out of favor and, and have you discerned or been able to analyze any sort of uh, precursor step that makes you think this zombie may be coming back to life? You know, I, I think a lot of it is health because that, that's usually kind of the downfall of an older player anyway. It, time's undefeated and a lot of times they get, they get their bodies get beat up. I mean, if you're staying healthy into your 30s, chances are you're going to have uh, a, a measure of, of quality that's going to keep you from falling into that zombie territory. But when you start having health issues, and then, fair or not, I, I think that Kemp's uh, disposition is, is attitude, if you will. I don't necessarily think he has a, a bad attitude, but he, he's kind of a sour face, and I, I think that I think he pays for that, basically. Like, if he was a, a happy-go-lucky, you know, out-in-the-media sort of dude, I'm not sure that he would have been put into the uh, in, into the fantasy graveyard there to kind of reemerge this year again because his stats never really fell to that to that depth. Uh, I don't think there's any one way to kind of identify these. They're all they're, a lot of them. I think if there's the through line, it would be health though. Because you look at the pictures that we talked about on that episode, or even Kemp himself, and any of the other ones you can think of, it's often that they got hurt, their numbers tanked. We said, okay, I guess that's it. But then they got healthy again, and, and we realized something that Ron Chandler's always said, and when they display a skill, they, ha they own it. And so once they get healthy, those skills start to come forward again. So it is a, it's a tough thing. It's a case-by-case. Case. I don't know that you can really set up a, a net to kind of capture all the fantasy zombies or the potential ones, because a lot of times they are just done, too. Like when we do put them yeah. off to the side, a lot of times it's right because they're 33 and they're kind of done. 
sometimes they bounce back, but you have to be open to them bouncing back, I think, too, and, and kind of look for the different factors that we would look for on a breakout player. Now you're looking for it on somebody who's already kind of broken out. He's older, Nick Markakis, with his power surge. He's not quite a fantasy zombie. because Well, maybe he is, because I guess uh, several years of just, like, mediocrity, volume was the only thing you really got for him, and now this year he kind of surged into an all-star. So, yeah, there's no one thing for me. I just think you got to be open to the idea that these guys can come back and not just dismiss them out of hand, which I think often happens because we're trying to cut the pool that we have to worry about, right. and it's easier to discard players. I think that's a big part of it, all right. And uh, the other thing that popped into my mind when we were talking about Mark Hakus, you talk about Matt Kemp, I can think of some other examples, is uh, team change. That a guy who's uh, a potential fantasy zombie might be benefiting from a change of scenery because he's worn out his welcome wherever he is. He goes, uh, in Marcakis's case, he goes to Atlanta where he's uh, maybe greeted in a different way or treated in a different way as a, as a, you know, an accomplished player rather than yesterday's news. And, you know, he gets reinvigorated. Kemp changes teams. He gets reinvigorated. Maybe one of the things we need to be looking for in preseason is uh, guys who have been kind of on the downside but who get traded into a better team situation. Exactly. I definitely think that those, those factors – um, are, are ones that need to be paid attention to. And again, Best Shape of Your Life has become a bit of a, a meme that we make fun of every time we see it, but I do think some of them have credence. And I'm not saying blindly believe in everyone that, that is Best Shape of Their Life and, and expect to get Matt Kemp's numbers, but don't instantly discard it. Kind of see what's behind it, see if there are skill changes that are happening, whether in spring or in the early season that kind of go with it. Kemp, I, I'm harping on that one specifically because that was one that, I think a couple of years ago, I would have been inclined to just push off immediately. I was like, okay, best shape of your life, whatever. You're going back to the Dodgers. They don't even necessarily want you, or at least that's what the story was based on his salary. It seemed like a kind of a salary dump. And then all of a sudden we're starting to see these, these positive thoughts on Kemp. And then he's, you know, hitting well and, and, and the power's there. So I kind of jumped in early. I only got him in, in, in two leagues off the wire. So it's not like some great call. And I, I wasn't talking about him in the preseason. I'm just saying that I, I kept him on the radar because of the, uh, uh, of the changes that he'd made, and I said, this is a former good player. Let's see. If it falls off, you can instantly jump off, too. If you're picking up a guy in a 10- or 12-team league, you're not committed for the whole season, too. Yeah. So if Kemp had worn out on May 12th, I could have cut, cut him on you know May, May 20th. It would take a week to kind of see him falling off completely and then move on, but instead – He's kind of sustained, as have some of these pitchers that we talked about on that particular episode, uh, Jordan Zimmerman, Annabelle Sanchez, and, and Ulysse Chastain. And I wonder with a guy like Kempe, you mentioned uh, this guy uh, used to be a good player. Maybe he can be a good player again. Kemp was a great player. You know, maybe there's, maybe, yeah, maybe that's something else we need to look at. This, this, this guy, if he only recovers three quarters of his peak, is still going to be a darn good player as opposed to somebody who was, you know, one of those $10 fantasy players. And maybe if he comes back and he gets to three quarters of his peak, well, now he's a seven, $8 player, no big whoop. But Kemp at his peak, what was he, a $45 player that one year? So, you know, if he recovers half his peak, he's at twenty two fifty. And, and, and the thing of it is, you know, even though the, the, the slash line wasn't something that would jump off the page, we're two years removed, 2016, from 35 homers and 108 ribbies. I know we're harping on Kemp, and this is kind of a one-off example here, but I, so I don't want to make too much of it to carry forward because he is an extenuating circumstance. But when a former star in their 30s 
you know, has a little bit of a fall off, don't completely get rid of them, especially if health is kind of playing a role. And again, the last thing I'll reiterate on Kemp, though, is he never really, you know, fantasy died because his lowest WRC, you know, weighted runs created plus, which is on a scale where 100 is average, his lowest is 100. And that was last year. He was average still. And yet the perception of Matt Kemp was that he was just this bum, this unusable bum across all formats. And so he was, he was treated as such. I think part of that, again, was, attitude and, 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 and the way he's viewed as a, as a person in the, in the fantasy community. So I think there's something to be gained there, too, in saying, listen, he's got kind of a sour face or whatever, but uh, that, he's, he's a perfectly capable player. And, and stay focused on the skills. Don't let those soft factors uh, push you away from a guy who has some skills and now some help. In the W uh, win, uh, weighted runs created plus environment, you say 100 is league average. Is that the same thing as replacement level, or is replacement level below that? I think replacement level is 97. I, I'm not entirely sure on that, but it, it's, the, it's the scale um, similar to the OPS plus where it, where it takes the, uh, the scoring environment and kind of neutralizes it so that, that you have 100 as average, and then he's at 141 this year, so he's been 41% better than League average. Again, I think replacement level is something in the mid-90s, but don't quote me on that number at, uh, right now because I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, now that I think about it, uh, it seems like replacement level should be below average because we think, well, who's an average kind of player in a league? And that would be, to me, it would be like a 5 or $6 player, and a replacement level player would literally be a $1 or $0 player. Like Marquecas before this year, what, what pretty much treaded around the average. He was just really solid, and then he plays every single day, and he has good defense. You add that with an average bat, that's a quality major leaguer, but he wasn't really fantasy relevant, and this year he spiked up. So, um, again, you know, we hadn't seen Kemp really fall off into the 80s or, or 90s with his numbers, so maybe he should have been given a little bit more credence when he uh, got healthy this year. We've been talking mostly about hitters, but uh, in your podcast with uh, Nick, you were talking about two pitchers, well, three pitchers, but two I'd like to talk about, Jordan Zimmerman and Annabelle Sanchez. And in your discussion of them, you hit on pitch mix as a really important factor. They both had uh, adjustments to the uh, proportions of pitch pitches that they were throwing. How should owners react to evidence of pitch mix changes, do you think, in predicting or explaining performance changes, especially gains? I think it can be a, a, a really big factor, especially if you have a guy who's kind of set a, a, as he is. Um, you know, like Jordan Zimmerman, we kind of know who he is, or, or, or we certainly thought we did. And then the last couple of years, he'd really, he'd really fallen off and, and was definitely in that uh, fantasy graveyard there with his performance. Uh, but then this year, he kind of uh, started to change the, the pitches up a little bit, get away from his fastball and amplify the slider. For me, the thing of it is, when you see somebody performing – I want to know what's different about it. Is it the same things that they've done, but then the pitches are better? That's possible. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be like a pitch mix change or anything. But a lot of times if they're just status quo and, and you know, maybe they have a good uh, strand rate, as we call it, at HQ, or, or you know, the, the, the hit rate's really low, which is commonly BABIP, um, then you say, okay, maybe there's some, some good fortune here and there's not too much else. So I want to see, are they doing things that are in their control or are things just really working out for them. So I look at pitch mix first. I want to see the batted ball distribution. Are they, you know, keeping the ball on the ground or, or putting it in the air? You always have Gene McCaffrey on every year, one of my favorite episodes. And he, he's the one that turned me on to the idea that 
uh, uh, outlier ground ball rate is great, but so is an outlier fly ball rate. Like that, that is that is uh, positively impacting things. A lot of times, those guys are getting a lot of pop ups too, which happens to be something that Zimmerman does. And in past years, they were they were leaving the yard. This year, he's getting a lot of pop ups. He's keeping the ball in the yard more, and he really has gotten away from his fastball and amplified the the slider and changeup usage. Uh, to to great effect so far. He had a little rough outing yesterday, mediocre outing, four runs against in six innings against Tampa Bay. But uh, he's been pretty good this year. So I like to look at pitch mix change, uh, velocity. Velocity going down doesn't automatically mean bad things. It can it can mean different things. I I really want to see pitch mix usage, velocity, and batted ball distribution when I'm looking for changes uh, in a particular pitcher. You mentioned uh, velocity. That's become quite a, a thing for people to follow, but we're starting to have even more granular kind of data coming from the StatCast operations and uh, BaseballSavant.com. Uh, how invested are you in those kind of things, especially I'm thinking of horizontal and vertical movement of uh, fastballs and breaking pitches? Yeah, movement's an a- absolutely a big thing. It's something I'm definitely interested in, too. Um, and I think we're still kind of factoring it or figuring out uh, the movement as to far as far as how, how good it always is, right? I don't think more movement is always better. Uh, for example, a guy I was looking at earlier this year when I investigated him was uh, Zach Godley, uh, big fantasy, you know, kind of not sleeper so much. Everyone knew about him, but there were some folks that were really invested in saying, I'm going to go ahead and get him. This, I was one such person, by the way. I really saw him as somebody who could be your, your fantasy number three, and, uh, and would put up a good season. He actually added break to his curveballs that Godley did, and I think it actually hurt him. I think it's breaking too much to the point where they aren't competitive pitches. Uh, guys are laying off of it, and so he has to come in the zone with his mediocre, you know, he doesn't throw very hard. He throws 90, uh, 88 to 90 with his cutter and fastball, and, and guys were, were, were picking on that, saying, hey, get that curveball out of here. We're going to spit on that. You're going to come into the zone with those weak fastballs, and he's getting clubbed. And then I think he started to take some of that uh, break off and, and get the curveball better lately. So he's actually uh, been somebody who's been improving because his break has gone down a little bit. So I love looking at that sort of stuff. It's not just more is better, though. So I still think there's some understanding and, and working out uh, the, the, the kinks, so to speak, with identifying what's positive movement versus uh, what is superfluous movement or, or even actually something that's negative to where you're not throwing. You know, another guy, Zach Britton, when he was coming up, particularly as a starter, he had so much movement. And if we had had those stat cast numbers, I bet his movement readings would have been absolutely filthy. But that's because he couldn't throw a strike to save his life. Um, and he had, like, too much movement. I think Blake Trinan's the guy who's kind of reined in his move. It's still absolutely disgusting. But now it's competitive pitches. So I love the movement stuff. I don't think that it's uh, always used properly, though, because more does not always equal better. And promise uh, the last question on this whole fantasy zombie idea. The baseball season, as we we know, is an arbitrary length of time, and uh, we tend to look at it as though it were some kind of um, thing that's ingrained in the universe like gravity or something like that. But is it possible that there are fantasy zombies out there who are going to turn it around after the break or partway through a season, and maybe we need to be looking at guys who are changing their pitch mix now and have been unsuccessful this year who might be really successful starting in uh, you know mid-July or August? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, uh, listen, for me as a, as a diehard baseball guy, I, I follow football, I play some fantasy football, I'm not 
uh, necessarily against other sports, but baseball is my number one. Uh, I start to get a panic when the calendar turns to July. I'm like, oh, my God, the season's already over. And obviously it's not. We're, we're, we're only halfway through. Uh, but I think some people kind of do that in fantasy, too. We get to the all-star break, and they're like, well, we're, we're basically done. No, we're not. We still have two and a half months, and there's going to be some guys that completely rise up out of nowhere or some stars who have struggled who are going to turn it around. And you should always stay diligent and kind of look for those guys that are making the tweaks to better themselves. Heck, uh, Zimmerman himself, is kind of an in-season zombie, meaning he started off poorly, and it looked like same old, same old with him. If you kind of look through his his first month, I think uh, he had like an eight ERA. I, I don't quote me on that, but I'm 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 close, I believe. And then he started turning around. He had another DL stint, comes back, cuts the fastball, dives into his two breakers, and that's when he's been taking off. So absolutely, uh, guys change on the fly. And don't just think because they've been this way in the first half. I mean, you know, rewind to April. This is something I do every year, and I recommend people do it just to kind of think about how things change. Go to your favorite site of choice. It doesn't have to be Fangraphs, even though that's where I work. Click the leaderboard. Go to April and look at everything that was happening then that we thought was like, this is the new norm and things that have changed. Obviously, D.D. Gregorius is kind of the, the standout there. He was an, an elite superstar for that first month, and then he was – the worst player in the world in, in May, and then he's kind of stabilized from there. But things are always changing. And, and, and the you know, using a month, too, by the way, and, and you talk about the arbitrariness of the season, just saying, like, well, July it's packaged in a nice little monthly split, but sometimes a guy's month that he takes off is half of June and the first half of July. So don't always get locked into what a guy's doing on the per-month split. Those aren't necessarily uh, – they're nice little packages – to kind of talk about things, but they don't really mean anything. They're as arbitrary as any other arbitrary endpoints that we talk about. And that's why if you do something where you say, since July 12th, this guy's done this, uh, okay, fine. But what's changed? I'm always okay if people want to use the arbitrary endpoints. If they're actually, if there's some, I guess they wouldn't be arbitrary at that point, but if there's something that changed from that point, that's what I want to know. Don't just pick when they got good and say, look at what he's been doing since this point. Well, has anything changed, or is he just running hot? Uh, there's always that balance, too, of run hot versus actual changes, right? The ebbs and flows of a season, um, it's going to shine on, on everybody at some point. If you play all, all 162 games, well, hardly anyone does that. But, you know, if you play 140 games as a major leaguer, you're going to have some 20-game runs, even if you're a 25th man. The, the sun shines on everybody uh, over the course of a season, if they play enough, even a fifth starter um, is going to have, you know, 15 really good starts. So that's another thing of, of identifying what are tangible changes and just kind of the, the peak of what a guy actually is, but not some sort of new level. And I think that uh, focus on the arbitrary endpoints of months is uh, exacerbated in a couple of ways. First of all, in baseball broadcasts, we hear them a lot. Oh, in May, he was really good or whatever. And that reinforces the idea that May is somehow, again, some kind of universal standard. And the other thing is, at most of the websites, including ours, Baseball HQ, including yours at Fangraphs, one of the splits that's readily available for people to look at is April, May, June. And uh, that kind of maybe subconsciously locks people into thinking about those things as discrete items in what is really a continuous variable world exactly and and you know i understand why it's done uh, i'm not necessarily saying that there should be a change on it but i'm always digging in the game logs to kind of look uh 
and, and not just get uh, get hung up on the actual months. And especially with pitchers, but even with hitters too, I want to see. I want to dig in on those game logs and really see, uh, you know, kind of what they're doing start to start and, and how things change that way. And especially when you start parsing, um, even even a, a full season, you start parsing it, and obviously small sample caveats apply. But when you're halfway through the season like we are now and you're parsing that, you're really getting into a, a danger territory of, of statistical sizes, and you have to be careful with that and, and make sure that the proper caveats are out there. So uh, it's just something to always be mindful of. It's not saying don't do splits analysis or, or dig into the numbers. It's just be aware of, of, of what it is and the limitations of it. That's why one of the things I really like, Paul, is when analysts do stories based on the last 150 games that this guy played, regardless of where you are in this season, but taking in that part of this season and the previous season enough to add up to 150 games. I've done it myself with uh, game logs for hitters and pitchers, and you start to see things stabilize, and you start to see trends forming that are sustainable at that 150-game rolling average level that you just don't see in even even 60 games or 60 days or 75 games or days. At 150 games, you're talking about a whole rolling season, and the drawback to that is sometimes uh, if a guy's been hurt or if he's a young player, he doesn't have 150 games and you have to fly a little bit more on the uh, trend that's described by a shorter interval but uh I like the uh, I like the idea of here's what they did for the last calendar year or the last 150 game span regardless of when that is to eliminate the arbitrariness of the endpoint dates I couldn't agree more and I, I will use that as an opportunity to promote the fact that in our split not only do we have the months but we also have past calendar year past calendar two years past calendar three years I love using the past calendar year uh, feature. So I'm glad you brought it up. I do think it's very useful. And, and just because the season flipped over and we had an off season, and yes, there may have been changes, uh, you know, players a lot of times find, that, find their level. So I don't think it's uh, bad to look at kind of what they did last year. And, you know, it really works um, to, to highlight two new fantasy aces that we have this year. When you do kind of the past calendar year to include their second half of last year, it shows just how great Trevor Bauer and Blake Snell have been now uh, dating back to last year because they really great they turned it around uh, in, in, I think, August of last year, both of them, and finished strong and then carried it into this year. So I think they both get a boost in terms of some stability with their performance where you're not just going off of this year to say that Snell and Bauer have been great. You're actually kind of pushing it back to last year. Maybe if you didn't have them on your fantasy team or you weren't aware of what they were doing, They've been doing this now for a while, so I do think the past calendar year aspect is very useful. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the excellent Sleeper in the Bust podcast. Uh, Paul, you also do a regular chat through Fangraphs. Uh, when, when's your turn in the barrel? I usually go Fridays. Every once in a while we mix it up uh, for, for like a scheduling change, but Friday afternoons is when you can find me, and I will be there uh, tomorrow, in fact. Or, or today, based on when they're listening to it, that's right. <laughs> Friday, Friday the 13th, the 13th. will be, be a, a lucky, lucky day, day if you can get, yeah, get, get on, on there and, and uh, have, have a, chat. a chat with Paul Sporer. Let's talk about some of your comments in last week's chat on July the 6th. Uh, someone asked you about a trade in which they could give up a good pitcher and get either a package of lesser hitters or maybe one big one. And you said to go for the one big hitter. Why did you uh, offer that advice? I believe that particular question was a, a, a smaller league, maybe a 10 or 12 team. And at that point, 
I, I want studs. I, I, I want the, the high-impact talent. I don't think getting a few guys that are maybe just above the cut line, or, or even if they're you know a full standard deviation above somebody that you would cut, that, that they're good players or whatever. I want a stud, though, in that sort of league. If I'm trading a stud, get me a stud back. There are some situations where, of course, you're trying to fill three different holes. You know, you had a lot of injuries. Th- you right. know, things went south. But for the most part, I'm going to say when you're trading a, a big player, get another high-impact player back, especially in shallower leagues. So that, in that instance, I believe it was a shallower league, and I said, no, go out and get an absolute stud. Don't just get a few middling guys and, and, and kind of spread the risk, so to say. I, I would rather pick up uh, – in those leagues, I'm trying to get as much star talent as I can. I'd rather consolidate. I'd always rather be the guy giving the two players for the one stud in leagues like that. It was a 12-team uh, mixed league, so a very shallow format, and you uh, you kind of uh, predetermined my argument, which was going to be, what if you've got three holes to fill and uh, all that's available in the waiver wire is not as good as the three guys he's offering you? I think that's the one exception to the rule. Uh, someone asked in your chat if it's too early to consider Nick Pavetta of the Phillies a FIP underperformer. What was your response? I believe I said no on that because the idea was that he, you know, he's always going to kind of underperform his FIP. I, I don't really believe that. He, he, the name he invoked was uh, Javier Vasquez, if I remember that question correctly, uh, a guy I really liked back in the day. And I, 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 I think he, Javier Vasquez was better than I, I think we give him credit for when you go back and look at his uh, at his game log. But as far as Pavetta goes this year, and uh, you know, a little bit of foreshadowing, we'll talk a little bit more about him later. Um, I like Nick Pavetta. And I think if you kind of look at this is going back to the game log thing, I'm not saying this to suggest that you can remove these games or anything. They count. But if you really look at his game log, his, his former team, Washington, they're the one that's drafted. They've done a lot of damage on him this year. Like they've, they've committed the bulk of the damage to, to substantially alter his bottom line. They put 13 runs on him in two and two thirds innings across two starts, May 4th and June 29th. Like that, that, those are just absolute dud starts. That's so damaging. Listen, everyone, as I mentioned, you know, everyone has the day the sun shine on them if you play all year. Everyone has the, 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 the storm cloud go over them, too, uh, even the best guys. This is excessive, though. I mean, you just don't see starts like that. And, and then two of them, it's so in- it, it's probably happenstance, but it's also interesting that it's the same team and perhaps to be the one that drafted them. So maybe they, you know, hey, that organization knows Pavetta, and they, they know how to beat him. Or maybe they just got lucky and, and, and cleaned this clock twice. But for me, I look at that 462 ERA, and I see a better player here. I, re- I really do. And, again, you can't remove those starts, but, but when you look at the game log, you see a lot more good than bad, and you really only see three blowups, those two and then one against Colorado. Not in Colorado, so he doesn't have that excuse, but they got him for six runs in five innings, which is, you know, that's kind of a normal bad outing. The other two against Washington are substantial. I don't think he's a fifth underperformer. I actually think he's somebody who's going to play closer to his uh, ERA indicators as the season wears on. Well, earlier we were talking about zombies, and somebody asked you about Jose Bautista, who looked uh, he looked as dead as Caesar there at the end of last year, and he couldn't find a job for a while. Now he's back in the big leagues, uh, and he's producing it after a fashion. Do you think he can be a, a zombie who produces the rest of the way? Total fantasy zombie. I think uh, I think Bautista played a bit. In, you know, he's even the more classic example 
than than anybody on the other ones that we mentioned because he was so bad last year and he's 36 and fantasy baseball is super ageist. Uh, we don't like older guys because nobody wants to be left holding the hot potato when they're in their mid-30s because then everyone's like, well, you should have known because he's in his mid-30s. And he had a terrible year last year, and he played all year too. So you can't – it's one of those where it's like, well, what do you mean you're blaming it on injury? Bautista played 157 games. I know. But he had nagging injuries throughout. He was clearly grinding it out at times, um, and, and, and it really impacted his numbers. And he just got to keep playing because he was out there and they were paying him. I'm not too surprised that he found – some life and I, but I didn't jump in on this one this isn't one that I was like oh let's 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 jump in here because it's still sketchy I think one of the biggest things uh for this year is he's gotten a little bit of his power back and he's gotten his batting eye back a little bit too because his OBP is back up I believe in the uh, 350 360 range for Bautista so I do see a little bit of life here although I would almost say this is more of what people call the dead cat bounce yeah. where uh you know he's kind of he's kind of bouncing up a little bit from that awful uh season last year but i don't know that he's going to take off and start to show flashes of 2015 2014 back when bautista was a superstar so between the two i would believe in kemp a lot more than bautista that's probably not saying much but uh, i do see that there is some fantasy zombie uh behavior here with bautista and he seems to have uh, found a little bit of a home with uh, with the mets in response to a question about Carlos Rodon, you said, and I quote, I think I like the idea of Carlos Rodon more than Rodon himself, which I thought was an excellent phrase. What did you mean by that? I like the idea that Carlos Rodon can get healthy and emerge and, and, and kind of develop into the guy that, that we think he can become, but uh, I'm not sure that I want to put that on my roster. And, and so I'm willing to forego that potential upside uh, because I do believe that, li- listen, in, in two years, if we're doing this uh, in 2020 and talking about an episode where at this very time of year, Carlos Rodon, the, uh, the starting pitcher for the American League in the All-Star game, I would not really be surprised. I can, I can see that as a very plausible scenario. He'll be 27 at that point. But at, at this juncture with what we've seen, the ups and downs, the fits and starts, and the injuries, it's not like he's grinding through several 170-plus inning seasons for Rodon. He continues to get hurt, too. And so I'm just more enamored of the idea of what he can be, uh, but it can be on somebody else's team at this point. So it was a fancy way of, of saying it's a wait and see, and, and I'd, rather, I'd rather see something before I really dive back in in terms of trying to roster him and, and time the good outings. I know he's always had pretty solid earned run averages despite the, the weak skills, uh, which speaks to what Rodon can do, the fact that he has a career 391 ERA, despite a 138 whip and, uh, you know, a solid but unspectacular 14% strikeout minus walk rate. Um, that, that's all good, but he allows too many homers. He gets hurt all the time. And uh, at this point, it's a little bit more of a headache than I'm interested in for the upside. So I like the idea that he can be great for Carlos Rodon, but for now, somebody else can have him. Somebody asked a question about Byron Buxton of the Twins. Uh, he was a pretty high draft selection in a lot of drafts this year and a huge disappointment for anybody who paid money or drafted him high. Uh, and somebody asked you, do you have faith that Byron Buxton is finally going to figure it out or has, uh, between his contact trouble, his injury trouble, has his ship really sailed and we got to start looking somewhere else? You know, I was saying last summer that I, I think it's time to lower the ceiling on it. And I know that's like more of a philosophical debate because ceilings are, are certainly not uh, finite and, and they're actually kind of nebulous just in the general idea of like what, what the player is seeing, what, like what level can they achieve? Obviously it can kind of keep going up, 
But for me, I think you have to look at Buxton, and, and I, I don't think you can put those kind of, uh, you know, elite fantasy player uh, tags on him anymore as any sort of a realistic outcome. Uh, I know when you're talking about those top prospects, you have a pretty high expectation within within reason, hopefully, that they become superstars uh, for the fantasy game. Like Ronald Lacuna is in that phase right now where we're, we're saying, hey, you know, we expect him to turn into something quite excellent. Uh, with with Buxton, I think you have to lower that ceiling. And, and former podcast co-host of mine and, and excellent guy, Eno Saris, wrote an article, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, I think it was last year, where he kind of highlighted the player comps that, that Buxton has right now based on what he's done. And a couple that really stood out to me were Cameron Maben and uh, at the time B.J. Upton, who's now Melvin Upton. And I think that's the territory that we should be looking at with Buxton. Uh, a great defender who's going to continue to play and get chances, as he should, by the way. I'm not suggesting that any major league team, particularly the, the Twins in this case, or if he were to move on, should give up on him. He's 24 years old. And I can see a scenario where he where he emerges and kind of uh, stabilizes for a bit. But I think we have to lower that, uh, that, that likely ceiling of his to something in that Maven Upton range as opposed to, uh, you know, no one was really thinking that he was Trout, but uh, there's no bets upside here. There's not even any – I'm not even sure that it's Starling Marte worthy because I don't think he's going to have the batting average of a Starling Marte. So I absolutely think the, the, the Buxton ceiling has to be lowered or else you're just kind of uh, selling yourself on some fiction or, or not even fiction, but more of like the, the 3 to 5% outcome instead of a, you know, focusing on what the 25 30% – potential outcome is well paul this has been terrific so far can you hang on and come back a little later on in the show absolutely paul sporer writes and chats for fan graphs and hosts the sleeper and the bust podcast and he'll be back a little later on the show coming up our market watch reports on player news from the national league and the american league next on baseball hq radio i was asking you sir uh <clears throat> Why it is that baseball wants this bill passed? I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they'd want it passed is to keep baseball going as the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. I'm not in here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the hundred years at the present time. Well, Mr. Vandal, do you uh, have any observations with reference to uh, the affability of the antitrust laws to baseball? Well, my, my views are just about the same as Casey's. <laughs> baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League and leading off its Star National League report. And Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Heading into the All-Star break. Yeah, the All-Star break's kind of fun. Uh, you know, uh, I know a lot of fantasy players look at the All-Star break as that interruption in the season when you get to sit around anxiously waiting for games to get started again. But I don't mind it. It's a chance maybe to take a day away from the game and uh, recharge. 
yeah, it always helps, I think, to recharge and gives you a chance to, to relook at some things and gives players sometimes a chance to get, get healthy who have been uh, struggling at this point in the season. Yeah, I'll be talking with Todd Zola a little later on about things we do incorrectly after the break to go for the stretch run. That should be a part of our thinking during the break is start to think about where we are, where we can go, what we need to do, and that kind of stuff. Uh, speaking of which, in Washington, they had to face a decision about what to do with Sean Doolittle. He had an inflamed toe, of all things, and it's uh, sent him to the DL. So uh looks like Kelvin Herrera, who was closing in Kansas City, came in to set up in Washington's back in the closer role. Uh, for the moment, certainly, at least, at least for a few games, uh, Doolittle will be eligible to come, uh, be eligibly activated right after the All-Star game. And uh, at this point, we're not sure that it's going to take any longer than that for him to get well. But it's one of those things, as you said, an inflamed toe. Uh, it, it's not one of those things we have a long track record on, so uh, hard to know exactly whether he'll be back immediately or not. But uh, Kelvin Herrera likely, likely to be the closer. 3.72 XERA, 120 BPV. Uh, been knocked around a little bit over the last month, but uh, really uh, could be a very uh, solid closer for Milwaukee, uh, for Washington rather during this uh, uh, during this short break. It won't be too many games, uh, really just Friday, Saturday, uh, Sunday, and uh, be, so that uh, only probably three or four games that he'll get a chance to close if they should need a closer. But toe injuries, foot injuries, on the other hand, they're kind of like hand injuries. Uh, they don't seem like that big of a deal, but sometimes they can work out to be a big deal. I've had uh, some problems with my big toe uh, once upon a time, uh, and uh, gosh, it's aggravating because you just you can never take the load off it because you have to move around. That's right. I mean, it's 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 something that's going to be there all the time, and and uh, hard to get to get fixed. And so uh, we don't know. Kelvin Rare may have to continue as the closer even after the break, depending on whether Doolittle is ready to return. Washington recalled a couple of uh, pitchers, Wander, Suero, and Austin Voth, and sent uh, another pitcher, Jeffrey Rodriguez, down to AAA. I'm guessing these are not major moves from a fantasy perspective. Yeah, I think we can ignore probably all of these at the, at the, at the present time, at least uh, none of them uh, uh, where it seemed to have a huge role. Also with the Nationals, they got some good news about catcher Matt Wieters, uh, perpetually injured these days, it seems. He was on the DL with a hamstring injury and was reinstated on Monday. They sent uh, catcher Pedro Severino back to AAA Syracuse. Uh, what do we th- think that uh, Matt Wieters is going to be able to contribute, assuming he can stay off the DL for the balance of the year? Well, you know, Matt Wieters has been on the DL for two months, so we haven't seen much of him so far this season. Uh, was only hitting 231. I had a decent 342 on base percentage uh, and an expected PX of 100, so right around uh, average in terms of expected power. And he'll get the bulk of the playing time as long as he can stay healthy uh, for the Nationals uh, during the uh, the rest of the season, uh, unless they can, can come up with a trade for catching help. And there are some catchers out there uh, that uh, various various teams are looking at. So uh, we can at least assume that Wieters is, is the guy until we hear something else happens. Uh, and uh, with a number of catchers on the market, uh, don't be surprised if some guys get moved between now and the, and the trade deadline, and Washington might certainly be looking. Were you surprised that Severino was the one sent down rather than Spencer Keeboom, uh, who remains as the backup catcher? Well, I think they just didn't want to leave Severino as the, as the backup and, and not playing most of the time was probably the, uh, the deal. Uh, Spencer Keeboom, uh, over the first 50 at bats, a 235 XBA, a 34 PX. So, uh, not much we're going to get out of Spencer Keeboom in the, 
the short time he's going to play. And I would guess that should Wieters get hurt again, which is, is always a possibility, that uh, 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 Pedro Severino would be back very quickly. It's been a terrible year for the New York Mets, and uh, the news didn't get any better this week when uh, they put Todd Frazier on the 10-day DL with a rib cage injury, uh, a left rib cage strain, they're calling it. They recalled infielder Ty Kelly from AAA Las Vegas. Uh, looks like there's a lot of playing time here from Todd Frazier up for grabs, and it could go a lot of different ways. It could indeed. And, you know, right now we just don't know what's going on with, uh, with Frazier and how long he'll be out. Uh, at this point, we've adjusted the playing time downward by 20%, but uh, it could, in fact, be more than that as we look at uh, uh, learn more about the injury and how long he might actually be out. Uh, very, as you said, various ways they can go with playing time here. Uh, Tyler Kelly was brought up from the minors. Tyler Kelly uh, was up earlier, uh, but did not get an at-bat. We've given him a playing time increase. He'll see some time. Wilmer Flores can see some time. Jose Bautista can see some time. Uh, Jose Reyes can see some time. So, they're going to be mixing and matching with various lineups for a while, I think, trying to get uh, find their best bet at third base while Frazier is out. So uh, at this point, we're giving the uh, uh, most of the playing time probably to Flores and to Reyes and to Bautista, but there uh, sh- should be some shuffling going on in that infield in New York until they figure out exactly how long Frazier's going to be gone. Well, you know, uh, Nick, the discussion I was having with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs a little earlier in the show was talking about fantasy zombies, these kind of players who come out of nowhere and and uh, seem to have been on the downslide or pretty much dead for fantasy purposes, and all of a sudden, here they are and uh, and contributing well. And, and I'm looking at list, the guys on this list like Bautista and Reyes. Uh, could they be fantasy zombies with a little bit of fantasy use? Well, they could indeed. I mean, you've got to, you've got to look at you know Jose, Jose Batista has bounced around uh, so much this season. You start to say, well, this guy was dead. But if you look over the last month, four home runs, fifteen RBIs, not a great batting average, only hitting two eighteen, but uh, began to show a little life in, into that uh, that bat that we know has had some life in it in the past. So certainly, Batista is a guy to look at, and Jose Reyes the same way could be of some value in the right situation uh, as we head down to the, the second half of the season. Another team that's been snake-bitten by injury has been the Los Angeles Dodgers. It's mostly been pitchers, but uh, now outfielder Yaziel Puig was placed on the 10-day DL. He's got a right oblique strain. Uh, they recalled Andrew Tolls from Class AAA Oklahoma City in a corresponding move. Jock Thompson, our American League guy, also covers the National League West teams uh, for playing time today. What does Jock say is going on with the uh, Dodgers outfield situation? Well, you know, we have to see what happens with Yasiel Puig and how long this oblique, uh, you know, oblique situations can can tend to linger. And uh, it was too bad because Puig was really starting to heat up and play some good some good ball for for the first time in a, in a, in a little while. But uh, Andrew Tolls, as we said, it was the guy who, who was brought up. Uh, Andrew Tolls is kind of an interesting player. Over the since since his recall, uh, only six at bats, uh, two hits, hitting three thirty three. But here's a guy that. Uh, that played very well for a while last year. 96 at-bats, hit 271, five homers, 15 RBIs in a very short stint a year ago, 83% contact rate, uh, was hitting pretty well in the minors prior to coming back up. So uh, Andrew Tolles could uh, could be someone kind of worth looking at uh, as you see how the Dodgers are going to, to use him. Was uh, working on a 326-363-500 line at AAA through 138 at-bats. So there is some potential skill there uh, if he gets in the ball game. 
And finally, Nick, in Milwaukee, outfielder Lorenzo Cain's having a terrific year. He was on the DL, but he's come back now, and that seems to have triggered really an avalanche of moves, uh, starting with Ryan Braun going on to the DL. And uh, these two guys, uh, Lorenzo Cain and Ryan Braun, are moving in the opposite direction in more ways than just on and off the DL. Yeah, they are indeed. Uh, Lorenzo Cain has been a great, uh, a great signing for Milwaukee, a great pickup, career best uh, walk rate, uh, career best on base percentage, career base OPS this season, really having one of his best seasons. On the, on the flip side, Braun is having one of his worst seasons, a downward trends and uh, career low on base percentage, uh, slugging, OPS, power index, hard contact index, uh, erosion in his contact rate, his batting eyes, expected batting average. Uh, Braun is now really a part-time player. He can't get healthy, and when he's in the lineup, he can't do enough to make uh, to make uh, uh, any kind of impact. So uh, I'm sure they're glad to have glad to have Lorenzo Kane back. You never want to lose a guy like Ryan Braun, but Kane is certainly a much better uh, uh, producer in the Milwaukee lineup. Uh, the other thing that happened: Manny Pena went on the DL. And so they're dealing with got all kinds of catching woes going on now in Milwaukee. Uh, recently acquired backup Eric Kratz has been forced into a regular role. And so that, uh, as we, we talked about the catching situation in Washington, uh, Milwaukee's another team that could be looking at making some moves prior to the trade deadline. Uh, and a catcher certainly is one of the things they may look at bringing on board, depending upon how long they think Pena will be sidelined. Uh, one of the players that they recalled in this uh, cascade of moves, right-hander Corbin Burns, and he's covered this week in the uh, daily call-ups report for prospects. So that's uh, an interesting call-up for them as well. He's a really nice-looking prospect. Yeah, he is indeed. And so that's someone to keep an eye on in, in Milwaukee as they, uh, as things begin to, to uh, shake out and shuffle out once we head into the break and uh, see how everyone is going to be uh, lining up once they come back on the field after the All-Star break. Well, plenty of news this week. Uh, Nick, I really appreciate you helping us out with the uh, analysis, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Certainly I'm doing better than Ken Giles, who started the season closing in Houston, then lost that job. Uh, I think A.J. Hinch lost confidence in him last year during the playoffs, frankly, and uh, didn't ever seem comfortable with Ken Giles. Uh, Then uh, Ken Giles, taking it one step further, was demoted to Fresno earlier in the week after he melted down on the mound. He was uh, yelling at uh, the manager, A.J. Hinch, coming to get him after he gave up three straight hits to Oakland, and it showed there was uh, reports that he had used some foul language towards the manager. So what is in Ken Giles' future? How long does this last? What should fantasy owners be doing with uh, this whole situation? Yeah, that's an interesting one, particularly now uh, that the trade deadline's on us. I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised to see Giles move, but then again, I wouldn't be surprised to see him back in Houston by the end of July uh, as before. Um, If he's still there, he's screwed up. He apologized and everyone will move on at least to a degree. Um, But, you know, closer jobs are obviously volatile uh, and and the Houston bullpen arms are interchangeable. Uh, Most are capable of finishing games. It wouldn't even surprise me to see Giles get more chances this year. All that being said, despite the fact that he still has outstanding peripherals and we talk about how unlucky he's been, 
he's been prone to these meltdowns. And like you've said, uh, A.J. Hinch doesn't have a lot of confidence in him. He's going to have to go on a run of clean innings and get a, a, a Hector Rondon injury or rough patch before he gets another opportunity. And I'm not sure that's going to happen. Uh, if I had to guess, uh, gun to my head, I think Giles and Houston part ways before the beginning of 2019. I think he needs a change of scenery. Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time either. Uh, he kind of wore out his welcome a little bit in Philadelphia, carping about how he wanted to be the closer when that wasn't what the team wanted, and eventually they dealt him off, I think partly just to get rid of him because he was being difficult in the clubhouse. Or That's how I remember the story. Does that uh, seem familiar to you? Yeah, it does. I vaguely, I vaguely do remember that, not as well as you right now, but I do remember something about that. It's not like Giles was pitching badly. I saw a report the other day that said he had something like 30 strikeouts against three walks over some uh, recent period of pitching. And the problem is when he went poorly, he went really poorly. Like his outings were either really, really good, up and down, three up, three down, or an occasional hit or occasional walk. But when he had a bad outing, it was horrendous. He's giving up like multiple runs in innings, multiple runs in part innings. And uh, after a while, you you really can't blame AJ Hinch for saying, you know what, enough is enough. I uh, I I'm going to get an ulcer watching this guy. No, that's right. Uh, Hinch has seen this a lot before, and uh, the one chink that I can see in Giles' armor is he's giving up a lot more contact than he did last year. I think his strikeouts per nine were around twelve this year. They're around nine, uh, something like that. Uh, but, yeah, everything seems to snowball on him. He gives up hits in bunches, and he doesn't seem to be able to extricate himself out of situations, which is probably why A.J. Hinch uh, came to get him the other night against uh, against Oakland. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, there's, there's just not a lot of confidence there, regardless of what the peripherals say. At Baseball HQ, we used to have a, a three-part rule for what made a successful closer, and one of the parts we called guile. And uh, I think it meant just the right mental attitude to approach the uh, job of closing. Uh, that kind of came, in, came into disrepute a little bit, this whole idea that there was a mindset that you needed to be a closer when a lot of people said, hey, what you got to do is throw strikes and, you know, get the ball over the plate and get the job done. But it seems like maybe Guile played a role in this Ken Giles thing, Giles Giles, I guess, uh, in that it did seem that when he got into trouble out there, he allowed the trouble to fester and then it started re really picking up momentum. And that's why he had these really bad outings uh, all exploding on him at once. Yeah, and the bottom line is metrics are good, and, and like you've suggested, uh, his his strikeouts to walks this year are amazing. He's really cut down the walks, even though the strikeouts have dipped a little bit. But the bottom line is the bottom line, and you got to get the job done partic in the ninth inning, particularly when you're on a contender that's uh, actually in a in a dogfight right now in the uh, in the AL West. So um, uh, he's going to have to. He's going to have to go on a, on a run of, of of clean innings before I think any 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 confidence gets shown in him by uh, by A.J. Hinch. And meanwhile, Hector Rondon, uh, I guess we're going to say he's the closer now until further notice, although the Astros have shown a willingness uh, to mix and match a little bit in the back end of their bullpen. Yeah, and I still think they will if Rondon hits a speed bump. But I'll tell you what, Rondon's outpitched Giles, straight and simple. I mean, a 1.62 ERA, 2.88 expected ERA. He's striking out 12 batters a game. He's been a closer, and he's been a good one. The Astros also promoted their prized outfield prospect. Kyle Tucker is up in the big leagues as of this past week, a little earlier than some people expected, frankly. Uh, what is the outlook for Kyle Tucker in a, in a loaded Houston playing situation? 
Yeah, I was one of those who was thinking uh, maybe after the All-Star break or shortly after the trade deadline. I, I think what happened was Carlos Correa uh, uh, it, it was put on the DL with some back stiffness, and they determined pretty quickly that he was going to be out uh, until after the All-Star break, or maybe they wanted him to be out, give him a rest. Tucker had been really tearing it up in June and July in, in AAA, so all in all, this seemed like a good time to give him an audition. Um, um, he, he has a broad skill set. Uh, he probably won't hit for high average early on, but he'll walk enough and show enough power, swipe a few bags. I, I think he'll be valuable for both fantasy owners and Houston. Now, he, he could be sent down as soon as uh, Correa comes back just because of the of the crowd there is. But uh, right now, I think he's going to play left field most days, and I think he has a chance to stick. I presume because Marwin Gonzalez has been playing shortstop while Correa is out that he's okay until Correa gets back. But when he does get back, all of a sudden you have Marwin Gonzalez, you got Tony Kemp who's been playing pretty well, and now we have Kyle Tucker possibly jamming up the left field situation as well. What's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. I mean, both uh, both Gonzalez and Kemp will use, especially Kemp. They, they'll find lots of places for Gonzalez to play. Uh, um, and, and Kemp has been really underrated. I'm looking at his numbers right now. He has a 392 on on-base percentage, and that's in a 128 plate appearances since he came up. He's been sitting at the bottom of the lineup, and when that lineup turns over and then you got George Springer and Alex Bregman, he's, he's been ex- uh, an extremely vital cog in that, in that offense lately. But they're going to try to find ways to keep him viable. I know they, they put him in center field uh, recently for, uh, to give Springer a rest over at DH. Uh, the Astros will try to get creative and keep everyone fresh and rested. The real key will be if, uh, is if Tucker sticks, uh, what happens then? If, uh, if he does, uh, Kemp is definitely a big playing time loser. I know this seems like a little bit out of left field. You should forgive the expression, Jock, but should Evan Gaddis owners be worried here? I know that he's been very hot the last little while and everybody's talking about Evan Gaddis smacking home runs and stuff, but over the last longer while, he hasn't really been that terrific of a hitter, especially with the contact rate issues and a relatively low on base percentage. And he's been clogging up the DH role. If they wanted to keep Tucker and Kemp and Marwin and, and Correa is back, could it be uh, Evan Gaddis who's the playing time loser once he falls back into his normal sort of lower performance? Oh, sure. I mean, Gavis has actually cooled off a little bit from his uh, his red-hot June, and he's a DH. You're right. He doesn't offer anything in the way of a, of a glove, so if he cools off and he's a right-handed hitter and pretty much all he does is bash, that's one area that uh, uh, um, Houston's going to use to to get their other players at bats, and, and Gaddis will lose some uh, some. Um, at bats at DH. So, uh, yeah, he's he's definitely a candidate to lose uh, lose some playing time. You know, if I was in a league that uh, Tony Kemp's owner was getting nervous about uh, the call-up of Kyle Tucker and the return of Correa and the, all of that, what we've just talked about, uh, I might approach him and say, you know, with Tony Kemp going to lose a lot of playing time, what would you take uh, as an offer? Oh, maybe get a low ball in there and get Tony Kemp on your roster? Because, like I said, I can see a path where Tony Kemp plays and Evan Gaddis doesn't, and I, and I think that might be, uh, if you're willing to speculate for the second half, that might be a way to go about it. Uh, Jock, you cover the American League West for playing time tomorrow, and you're an Angels guy, so the bad news out of the uh, AL West and for the Angels is Garrett Richards, done for the season. He tore his UCL again, as opted for uh, PRP injections in the past, but now he's opting for Tommy John surgery. He's out for this year, probably all of next year as well. Uh, what happens now to this Angels rotation, which has just taken one body blow after another? 
Yeah, for 2018, I honestly don't know where they go. Um, obviously, they should begin uh, looking at 2019, which is something I think we've discussed on the radio here um, over the past few weeks. Uh, and that alone could open up some, some interesting August and September auditions. Uh, but back to the rotation, right now they have Skaggs and Heaney heading it up. They've got rookie uh, Jaime uh, Barria. Uh, he's the number three. Uh, Felix Pena has surprised me a little bit somewhat in a small sample. Uh, he's kept the walks down, uh, but it is a small sample. It's going to be interesting to see how he does. He's the number four right now, Deck McGuire, who's been pretty bad, number five. They're, they're hoping they can get Tropiano and Shoemaker back somehow after the All-Star break, but they have no wiggle room right now in terms of injury. And uh, now after losing uh, both uh, Otani and Garrett Richards, those were the two that were supposed to carry them to the wild card. Uh, their, their 2018 is pretty much over, it seems. It does seem that way, and that starts making you think, what are they going to do with their uh, some of their veterans who might be attractive to uh, to other teams as trade bait, maybe try to reload the farm system a little bit. I think uh, Anaheim, maybe not right away, but soon, is going to have to make that decision. Uh, over in Boston, I was watching a game the other night against the Blue Jays, and after the, the Red Sox won, the announcer said the Red Sox were 37 games over 500. 37 games. It was the hottest start they've had at this point in the season since I forget what he said, 1940 or something like pre-Ted Williams. But now they're starting to see some injuries. Starting catcher Christian Vasquez is out with a broken finger. He's going to miss six to eight weeks. Matt Dodge wrote up this in Playing Time Today. What's Boston going to do with Christian Vasquez on the shelf? Well, they're going to use Sandy Leone, who's who's been a first stringer in the past for Boston. And, and he's not terrible as a deep league uh, catcher picked up might go. Uh, he's, he's got about average power. He's above Mendoza line batting average. He could accumulate some counting stats in that home venue and in that lineup. Uh, this injury really hurts Blake Sweetheart, who now becomes the backup catcher, so he's going to get less utility opportunities uh, uh, depending on whether they need him or not. And it really helps Steve Pierce. Matt Dodge pointed this out, and Pierce has been red hot since joining Boston. He's now Boston's primary uh, utility over Sweetheart, and uh, he's gonna he should get a lot more at-bats. I think this also could put Boston in the running for more catching help at the trade deadline. I don't know that they have anything to trade for him. That system is pretty uh, pretty barren right now, but uh, I'm sure they're going to kick the tires of anyone offering catching help. Yeah, and uh, probably there will be. There should be a lot of uh, trade action, and Boston has the prospects to offer too, so they would be uh, competitive, shall we say, in any kind of uh, trade auction for, for catching talent. Uh, finally, in Chicago, the White Sox Avisail Garcia spent two months on the DL earlier this season with a hamstring problem. Then he was recalled. Now he's back on the DL with the same hamstring problem. Rick Green covers the uh, White Sox for playing time today. What are the White Sox looking at by way of options to replace Avisail Garcia? Yeah, the latest stuff I've just read is that this is a grade one strain and not the grade two that uh, that happened before. And, and some sites are calling it hamstring tightness. Uh, it's still kind of tough for the White Sox. I mean, like you said, he missed uh, he missed all of May and all but 37 at-bats in, in June. And, and he, he did six home runs in July just before this injury. So he was getting hot. Uh, this would have been a really good time to get Aloy Jimenez up for a brief cup of coffee, but he's injury as well. Uh, he's injured as well. This there, there's really no such thing as good timing on something like this. But if there was, it would be right before the All Star break. So Garcia's going to get some time to heal, and hopefully, if the White Sox outlook is right, he's going to be up shortly afterward. Uh, in the meantime, 
there's really not much to pick from in this outfield. You got Daniel Palka will get a few more at bats off the bench. He'll get some left field time. They'll move Lurie Garcia from left field to right field. They'll keep shuffling those center fielders. Uh, there's just not a lot to see here in the Chicago outfield or outfield until uh, Garcia gets better and probably Jimenez uh, makes his debut. They also grabbed Ryan Lamar off the Twins uh, through a waiver deal or a, a, some kind of minor deal. Uh, any prospects there for some fantasy help? Well, he's a he's a contact guy. Doesn't have a lot of power. Has a little speed. Uh, doesn't do anything particularly well. If if uh, if he gets lucky with his contact rate and the hits drop, he could help for you know maybe a couple three weeks. But uh, you know we're talking about a guy who with a two sixty three batting average and a uh, a three thirteen slugging percentage. So pretty much what you see is what you get there. And Rick Green covering the story for Playing Time today at baseballhq.com noted that uh, as sort of promising as a 263 batting average looks like it was a 216 expected batting average so there's been a little luck at the, at work for Lamar to even accomplish 263 and his base performance value minus 48 <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> mi- minus 48 is not exactly the stuff of which dreams are made yeah the white Sox, if the, if they're doing any trading at all they should be looking for more outfield help obviously or maybe they'll try to rebuild like uh, so many other teams are doing. Jock, uh, always a pleasure. Great news from the American League. Uh, do appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Okay, see you, PD. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat for Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Pitcher matchups all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now it's time in the show and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In The Speculator, Ryan Bloomfield speculates on trade action as we approach the deadline. In Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Fred Zinke looks at the American League Central with a focus on getting ahead of the trade deadline. And in the Facts and Flukes Spotlight, I'll have a deep dive analysis of White Sox shortstop Tim Anderson. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com, not just content to read, but tools you can use. And they're there all the time, and they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have Frequent Flyer and our Pitcher Matchups report is back. And leading it off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at San Diego outfield prospect Buddy Reed is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The San Diego Padres' Buddy Reed is in the midst of a monster breakout season and this week was named to the 2018 All-Star Futures Game. The 23-year-old Reed was a second-round pick in the 2016 draft after a standout collegiate career with the University of Florida, but has been slow to develop as a pro, hitting just 239 with a 290 on-base percentage and a 396 slugging percentage last year. The switch-hitting Reed has intriguing raw tools with plus speed, good range, and a strong arm, making him an elite defender in center field, but an overly aggressive approach at the plate resulted in a 28% K rate last year and caused some to question his long-term major league potential. 2018 has been a different story, and on the year, Reed is hitting 324 with a 371 on base percentage and a 549 slugging percentage with 21 doubles, 12 home runs, and 33 stolen bases in 40 attempts. 
Reed is still swinging and missing too often and already has 84 punch-outs and 315 at-bats, but he also has a 921 OPS and is on track for an impressive 2040 season. Reed needs to learn how to make more contact and control the strike zone, and his current 407 batting average on balls in play is not sustainable. He also needs to prove that he can duplicate this type of production outside of the hitter-friendly Cal, but a strong showing in the Futures game could further raise his national profile, and fantasy owners should consider taking a flyer on this talented but unpolished player. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes call-up coverage of Milwaukee right-hander Corbin Burns, San Francisco right-hander Ray Black, Houston outfielder Kyle Tucker, And in the eyes have it, scouting analyst Chris Blessing goes on the road to check on three Tampa prospects in single A. Catcher Ronaldo Hernandez, who has jumped from a 7C prospect to a 9E, shortstop Taylor Walls, and second baseman Vidal Brujan. These days, knowing the prospects can mean the differences in many of our leagues, and BaseballHQ.com provides you the prospect tools that you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for Frequent Flyer, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyer is Houston third baseman Tyler White, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. His power is big league worthy, according to Baseball HQ's 2018 Baseball Forecaster. And at age 27, he's at a peak age for landing an everyday major league role. However, there appears to be no clear path to playing time in Houston for Astros third baseman, Tyler White. The two-time minor league all-star has a career 306 batting average of the minors and was hitting 338 for AAA Fresno before his June 15th call-up. Despite batting 200 with one home run through his first 30 major league at-bats this season, Tyler White did bat 279 with three home runs and 22 games for Houston in 2017. And he crushed eight home runs and only 85 at-bats for Houston in 2016. However, barring injury or some other unforeseen circumstance, Tyler White has virtually no chance of regular playing time in Houston behind 24-year-old all-star third baseman Alex Bregman and 34-year-old corner infielder Yuli Gurriel, who is currently slashing 304, 335, and 774 with six home runs. That's why Tyler White, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. On the other hand, let's talk about Brad Hand. Could the recent demotion of Houston closer Ken Giles signal Houston's intent to trade for a new closer? Brad Hand for a package that includes Tyler White? Maybe. After all, despite hitting 18 home runs, Padres third baseman Christian Villanueva is only batting two twenty-eight in 2018. Then again, if the Astros pursue Zach Britton, Perhaps Tyler White would be an improvement over Tim Beckham's slumping 209 average. Look at it this way. Using Tyler White's 82% minor league contact rate, 
or his ability to get wood on the ball. Combined with a 13% minor league walk rate, we at BaseballHQ.com can set an expectation benchmark of a 276 major league batting average for Tyler White. Not surprisingly, only three percentage points off his actual 279 batting average in Houston in 2017. However, we found that most 300 hitters, remember that Tyler White was batting 338 in Fresno, come from a group that has a minimum of an 86% contact rate and an 11% walk rate. At Fresno in 2018, Tyler White had an 85% contact rate, close to 86%, and a 15% walk rate, well above 11%, suggesting that Tyler White could very well be a 300 hitter in the major leagues with big league-worthy power and the ability to make your team a big league-worthy contender when you consider adding Tyler White, our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for pitcher matchups. Baseball HQ rates matchups on a scale centered on zero, with starts higher than 0.5 rated as strong starts, while starts rated at minus 0.5 or worse are rated weak starts. Those in between we call judgment calls. Here with a scan of Tampa right-hander Chris Archer in Minnesota to face the Twins right-hander Jose Barrios, plus Yankees right-hander Masahiro Tanaka in Cleveland to face all-star right-hander Trevor Bauer, as well as other weekend matchups, it's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. For the first time this season, we have two weekend matchups in which both starting pitchers have matchup ratings in the strong start range. On Saturday in Minneapolis, 24-year-old Twins all-star right-hander Jose Barrios has the sixth-best matchup rating of the day at 107. He faces the Tampa Bay Rays 29-year-old right-hander Chris Archer, who has the 23rd and last strong start matchup rating of the weekend at 050. On Sunday in Cleveland, Indians 27-year-old all-star right-hander Trevor Bauer has the second-best matchup rating of the weekend at 22. Justin Verlander tops the list at 278, but back to Bauer. He'll face the New York Yankees 29-year-old right-hander Masahiro Tanaka, who has the second lowest strong start matchup rating of the weekend at 0.51. Tanaka just returned from a month on the disabled list after straining both hamstrings while running the bases in an interleague game. Rather than pick one of our two marquee matchups to examine thoroughly, let's give some quicker coverage to both by skipping the team context and honing in on our starting pitchers. Beginning with Saturday's marquee matchup, the overall matchup rating differential between Jose Barrios and Chris Archer is 57. Using our exclusive category component ratings, both Barrios and Archer looked like long shots for a win, and they're close to even in ERA. The edge for Barrios comes from the likelihood of his superior performances in strikeouts and whip. Archer suffered through three straight PQS disasters to begin April, but in his past 10 outings, starting with a PQS dominant four against the Twins in Tampa, Archer has had four PQS doms, four PQS decents, and two PQS disasters. His average PQS score is three. This will be Archer's second start after returning from the DL for a left abdominal strain. BaseballHQ.com Stephen Nickrand and Brant Chesser have both advised against bailing out on Archer yet, citing his unlucky hit rate and strand rate, plus a fluky failure to hold left-handed hitters in check. 
That said, Archer is sporting career highs in full-season expected ERA and whip. On June 30, Stephen Nickgrand noted that Jose Barrios had improved his command against left-handed hitters from 1.7 strikeouts per walk last season to 4.8 strikeouts per walk this year. Barrios burst through the triple-digit mark in BPV this season, progressing from 6 to 92 to 129 in his three campaigns. Barrios has had dream career progressions in whip, opponents on base average, batters faced per game, hit rate, control rate, dominance rate, command ratio, first pitch strike rate, and swinging strike rate. He now has a dominance rate over one, supported by a first pitch strike rate of 65% and a swinging strike rate of 12%. His under one whip is aided a bit by a hit rate of 26%, but Barrios boasts an expected ERA of 350. The overall matchup rating differential between Trevor Bauer and Masahiro Tanaka is 169. The only component category rating in which Tanaka is even close to Bauer is whip. Bauer looks much better than Tanaka for strikeouts, ERA, and wins. Tanaka has allowed at least one home run in 13 of the 14 games he started. His home run woes have inflated his ERAs this season and last. Tanaka's ERAs have been 474 last season and 468 this year, while his expected ERAs have been 351 and 369. Despite a career-best first-pitch strike rate of 67% and swinging strike rate of 15%, Tanaka is displaying a career-worst control ratio of 2.5. With his season-long BPV never having been below 116 and now at a very strong 121, we keep expecting Tanaka's surface stats to better reflect his underlying skills. But it hasn't happened yet. Meanwhile, Trevor Bauer is blossoming into a full-blown ace. His near-perfect Mayberry score from the 2018 Baseball Forecaster is 4505 AAA. That's 4 out of 5 for ERA, 5 out of 5 for strikeouts, 0 for saves, 5 out of 5 for innings pitched, and A's for health, experience, and consistency. If Bauer whiffs just two batters in this outing, he'll have equaled his second-best total for a season at the All-Star break. He's featuring career bests in ERA, expected ERA, whip, Opponents on base average, batters faced per game, line drive rate, control rate, dominance rate, command ratio, swinging strike rate, velocity, and BPV. In fact, Bauer's base performance value is a closer-worthy 156. In his past 11 starts, Bauer has 9 PQS doms, including 7 straight perfect PQS 5s. We can't predict what's next in that sequence, but we have a pretty good idea it'll be worth starting Trevor Bauer. To finish, a quick scan of our exclusive ERA and WHIP component matchup ratings reveals a baker's dozen of starting pitchers who have both ERA and WHIP component ratings above one. The biggest surprises are Colorado Rockies' Jonathan Gray and Tyler Anderson in Coors Field. To recap our marquee matchups for this weekend, look for great performances from Trevor Bauer and Jose Barrios, expect above-average results from Chris Archer, and be wary of Masahiro Tanaka. Check our site to get updated matchup information every day. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick does our weekend pitcher matchups during the season. And when we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer. From Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, he's coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Pitch is a high fly ball to right deep. Going back is Tarasco to the warning track. To the wall, he's under it now. And it's taken away from him by a fan. And they're going to call it a home run. I can't believe it. Pitching a 
HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul, welcome back. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. In your Fangraphs column, you wrote recently about identifying young pitchers who might lose some value in the second half of the season because of innings limits. Uh, first of all, how did you identify these pitchers and their potential innings limits? So pretty pretty basic idea here, just to kind of take a look at, at some guys. Uh, you know, they have the whole Verducci effect or whatever, and I, I'm, that's not necessarily what I'm following. I just follow a very simple formula of taking their last year's innings and adding 25% to it. It's not hard and fast. Not, not all teams uh, go that route, but I think it's a reasonable starting point to kind of take a look and see what that would do. There, there are exceptions to everything that, that we can adjust for, and I did in the article with certain guys. But I think for the most part, if you're looking at something like that to get a general idea, that can kind of uh, help you target uh, who might be in danger of an innings limit and who should be free and clear for the rest of the year. And when you say uh, the previous year's innings, that counts major and minor leagues? Correct. So I just took their, their full innings uh, from, from if they pitched in the majors plus the minors, add 25%. That's the starting point, and we kind of focus on, you know, kind of look at them from there. The guys that would have, uh, you know, a bunch of innings left, we should feel pretty good about them. They're not going to face any real trouble. And, and the guys that don't have a lot of, you know, the outlier edges are, are where we can really get some information. Then in the middle, it's, it's kind of a, a, a touch-and-feel sort of game there about, you know, is the team going to limit this guy? They're also in contention. So there are still – it's not a hard and fast thing that uh, you just look at this and, and wipe your hands and you're, you're done. It's definitely something that is just kind of the starting point of guys that maybe are going to have some concern and, and get skipped a few times and maybe are worth, worth trading at this point to not deal with those headaches, especially if you're a weekly league guy who, uh, who can't make those lineup changes if they decide to get skipped randomly on a Saturday – when you started them on Monday and they were slated to go Saturday, they say, you know what, let's push them back to next Wednesday. And all of a sudden you, you lost that outing with no real uh, chance to change for it. And in what other ways might owners be able to apply this information in making those kinds of roster and trade decisions? Well, I think you can, you can look to trade some of the guys that are, that are really, much, really in the danger zone if you're competing. Or you can spin it the other way. If you're in a keeper league, you can trade for those guys. Uh, it, you know, in like Dynasty League, especially if it's a young guy, you say, listen, I'm not really in contention. This guy's coming up on an innings limit. There's there's no way. There's a couple guys out there, particularly, uh, I, I'll, I'll wait for you to bring up the names, the ones that you want to talk about, but there's a couple young guys that uh, there's no chance that they make it. To, there's just absolutely no chance they make it to the finish line with the innings that they have and with the way the teams generally handle uh, the, these types of players, their specific teams. So if you wanted to trade them, uh, that would be prudent, but you also, in a dynasty league, could be open to trading for them and, and getting these guys and say, and just being forward with the uh, trade partner saying, you know, these guys aren't going to make it. Um, I'm ready to trade for them. I'll give you some guys that are going to make it to the finish line and, and, and go that way. So you can go both angles with it, depending on your league type as far as trades go. And it struck me as I was reading the piece, uh, Paul, that, uh, and this is something that you touch on, that uh, if the guy is pitching for a team that has a likelihood of making the playoffs, there might be a further complication in that that team might also want to start resting the guy to save or put into reserve, I think you called it, some innings so that he can pitch in the playoffs without, without approaching a real bad innings limit. Exactly, and especially because 
Um, you know, this is something that, that John Smoltz and Justin Verlander have heard uh, talk about this, that playoff innings are about a, a 1.5 tax. You know, you should kind of count them almost as, as an inning, uh, as a 1.5 accelerator because of the, the, the tax that you put on. And teams are certainly aware of this, and they don't want to have some guy that's bumping up against 200 before you even get to October, and then to expect another 20 that that's you know going to play at at, at a 1.5 there and almost play like 30 extra innings. So there are some guys, some teams that have to be mindful of that. I think the biggest one in that kind of danger zone uh, would be Lance McCullers because of his health. You know he's had his health issues pretty much throughout his career. Um, you know he hasn't made it through a full season, and there's almost no way Houston isn't going to be in the playoffs, and they're going to want Lance McCullers to be a key part of that. So they've really got an interesting balancing act. To, uh, to enact with uh, McCullers coming forward. You also mentioned Zach Eflin of the Phillies in that same vein, but you said we shouldn't be concerned about probable young pitchers on playoff-bound teams like Luis Severino, uh, Aaron Nola, Sean Newcomb, Eduardo Rodriguez, and even Michael Fulmer should he get dealt to a contender. Why do you make exceptions for these pitchers when you don't make the same exceptions for these other guys? I think they just have enough innings in reserve uh, based on the workloads that they that they put up, particularly last year, of course, um, you know, for Severino, he had the third highest innings left, quote unquote, based on the formula that I did. Uh, so I think he's going to easily make it to the finish line here in the regular season, and then still have plenty in the tank for what the Yankees and the Yankees fans are, of course, hoping is a long playoff run. I don't think that there's really any issue with those particular guys. The, the closest one that I would think there would be Newcomb, or excuse me, would be uh, Eduardo Rodriguez because of the health issues he's had, especially with his lower half. If he ended up, you know, if he gets hurt, obviously it mucks everything up. But if he stays healthy, I think he's going to be kind of right on the cusp. They could maybe skip him, uh, you know, a time or two in August, September, if they start to, if they're breathing easy for a playoff spot. But they want to get that, that division as well. Neither the Yankees nor the Red Sox want to play in that wild card game, so that's going to give them incentive to keep going. Eduardo Rodriguez is a key part of their rotation, so they're going to have to balance it a little bit. He's a little bit closer than the others just because of the more recent injuries that he's had, but I think that he's, he's clear and you shouldn't have to worry about too much of that to the point where you would want to uh, get out from under him if, you, if Eduardo Rodriguez has been a key part of your fantasy rotation to this point. Your list also included some pitchers who are already in what you called negative territory. They've already piled up more innings this year than the model allows. Uh, two of them were with Oakland, Daniel Mangdon and Frankie Montas, who's been terrific. What do you see the A's doing with these two guys for the balance of this season, especially since they're kind of sort of hanging on the edge of playoff contention? Yeah, and I think that's going to be kind of a deciding factor is, is just how, how much in contention they are. Those guys have both dealt with injuries. Uh, Mangdon's on the DL right now, though, so he's kind of already managing his innings, uh, uh, you know, involuntarily, I, I should say. Of course, uh, he didn't want to get hurt, but that's maybe helping with, with Mangdon specifically. And then Montas, um, didn't he get sent out? Uh, and it might have been the, the, the thing that they do sometimes with the young guys where they put them, where they send them out uh, to the minors with the explicit purpose that they're really not going to pitch and they're going to get an extended uh, all-star break, so to speak, to then come back and be ready to go. So I think that that's what uh, Montas's uh, demotion was about. I think he's going to kind of stay parked in AAA, not necessarily pitch zero, but just pitch maybe once 
uh, as opposed to two or three times during the All-Star break and then be ready to go for them because he's been a key part. He's, had, he's been a really interesting guy, by the way, because his, his metrics are, are saying watch out for the bottom to fall out because he's not striking out many guys and he's still giving up too many hits. But he's got nasty stuff. He is a real prospect. Um, I could see him still kind of beating the uh, beating the peripherals, so to speak, and having a better ERA. But I think Montas is probably a bigger concern than, than Mengden, if only because Mengden's already on the DL. And frankly, I don't think Daniel Mengden's that good. When he came back to earth, I wasn't that surprised. But they do need every, every uh, pitcher that they can get, by the way. Injuries have absolutely ravaged that team. The fact that they're even 52 and 41 with the way the pitching has been destroyed. In fact, I like them for a playoff spot. I picked them for a playoff spot this year, but it was based on two factors that were gone before the season started. Jarrell Cotton, uh, you know, rebounding from last yeah. year, pitching well for them. And then A.J. Puck, a prospect coming yeah. up and delivering, you know, like 120-plus quality innings. And they're both gone. And then virtually everybody else but Sean Manaya has been injured at some point for them this year. So the fact that they're even in contention right now is amazing. And so they'll balance it. They won't push these guys too far. But I think Montas is, is, is going to be pushed further than, than Mengden, I think, especially because I think Montas is just better. One of the comments after the article raised an interesting perspective about how teams measure pitcher workload, and I'm going to expand on it a little by asking, uh, how likely is it that these at-risk young pitchers might still get more starts or more innings at any rate because their teams are going to manage them instead of by innings, by pitch counts, by times through the order, or maybe by doing some of those kind of co-start arrangements like Colorado did a few years ago where they you know, let the guy start but pull him out after three innings or four innings to keep his innings workload down and his pitch count workload down while not stopping pitching him altogether. I think we'll absolutely see stuff like that, and I, I, I think it's worth bringing up. And, and I guess the, the, the point is not necessarily that they're automatically, especially the guys that, that were kind of in the danger zone with their innings, that they're necessarily going to be shelved and you're going to get zeros out of them, but you are going to get uh, – you should have a lower expectation for what they're going to do. They might have some three- and four-inning starts, as you say, where they're kind of tandem starting with somebody to kind of limit those innings, which for me would still be better than – you know, just sitting on the shelf doing nothing. At least let me get some innings out of these guys so that they might push beyond these, these you know, thresholds that I've, I've laid out, but not in such a manner where they're pitching deep in the games. Because honestly, Patrick, it, it's not so much how, how much you pitch. It's how much you pitch when you're tired, when you're, when you're fatigued. And, and so that's, that's a real key uh, to all of this. And so if it is more of a bunch of four- and five-inning starts to kind of make sure that they don't get that third time through and that they're not pitching, uh, you know, 30 to 50 pitches while tired, uh, then they can push beyond these, these plus 25% uh, thresholds that I've laid out. Because, again, these are only guidelines to give us an idea of guys that we should maybe be concerned about, not hard and fast rules, and not necessarily teams have come out and said that these guys are going to be limited. It's just have them on the radar and, and be mindful of what the situation is. And finally, uh, is there any kind of similar innings limitation for relievers? Uh, I know they don't pitch nearly as many innings, and ordinarily we wouldn't think that uh, they need an, an innings limit, but they, they get up and they warm up and don't come into games. They throw a lot of innings in the, in the warm-up phase and not necessarily always in the game phase. And I'm wondering, have you noticed or has anybody done any work in identifying innings limits for relief pitchers? That's really interesting. I haven't 
thought about it, I think the p- part that you mentioned that's most important there is how much they throw in the bullpen before they actually come out. And, you know, when, when, when there are egregious examples of a guy maybe getting up three or four times and, and then not even getting into the game, uh, that gets highlighted. But I, I don't think we've done any work, and I, I certainly haven't seen it if, if it's out there. Someone tweeted to me at Spore, um, you know, on reliever workloads. I, I think the game tends to be overly conservative with reliever workloads as it is anyway. But, um, yeah, I, I haven't really studied that myself, and I haven't seen a lot on it. But it is kind of fascinating because uh, they probably should have some guys that they're protecting more. But I also think a, a large bulk of the uh, relievers out there should probably be pushed further because they can handle more innings if they're managed properly. But I think bullpen management is still something that's uh, it's getting better. We're seeing guys get you know more innings out of, out of out of their uh, out of their power relievers. But I still think there's room room for more. And and by the way, that's a throwback, right? We used to have relievers go a hundred easily. The firemen, uh, Mike Marshall, wanted uh, Cy Young by pitching two hundred relief only innings he did not start that year and i'm not saying we're going to get to that but the fact that we almost never have a 100 inning reliever um without having you know four or five swing starts on there i think that's kind of crazy because right now it's too much of you're either a six inning guy or you're a one inning guy and that's just that that that, that's silly i think there's a three inning a two to four inning role that uh more teams are starting to fill but it's there's still a lot of work to be done there to kind of uh get the most out of out of the talent that teams have uh, with relievers. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. Uh, Paul, with the Major League trade deadline a couple of weeks away, what are you expecting to see in the trade market? Well, I'll tell you, if, if, if Baltimore botches this and doesn't trade Machado, I, it would be something else. I, I think he has to get trade. I, I cannot see a scenario where they don't find something that they like and make that move. As far as some of the other, uh, the smoke on, on, on really big guys, I'm not sure that the Mets are going to trade either of their starters. It, it, it could be interesting. I think that's more of an off-season thing, though, uh, to trade a guy like that and, and really set it up. I, I think part of the problem with the, with the star players being – uh, the two starters on the Mets and Machado is that I don't trust either of those organizations to do smart things. So I just don't know, uh, you know, how confident I am that they're going to make those moves. As far as the market at large, it's a really interesting market, Patrick. We haven't had one like this for a while, or I'm not even sure the last time we did, where it's it's very clear buyers and sellers um, and, and not much in the middle. There's not, you know, we talk about Oakland. They're the only team in the American League that doesn't have a playoff spot right now that's a legitimate contender. All the other, like, otherwise, the playoffs are set. you got Boston, New York, Cleveland, Houston, Seattle, and then Oakland, and that's it. Tampa Bay, if they made like a big run, could maybe sneak in there, uh, but it would take something exceptional. The NL is a little bit more open, but still pretty clearly delineated that there's this pack of buyers and then, and then the, uh, the, the sellers there with Mets, Marlins, Reds, Pirates, uh, Padres, and then you got a couple fringe teams on, with the Cardinals, Rockies, and even the Nats. Listen, we take them and say, well, they, you know, they've got this, all this star talent. They're contenders. They're at 500 right now, and there's a lot of teams in between them. A lot of times it's not what your record is. It's how many teams are in between you, and I think that that's the biggest hurdle right now for the Nationals. So it should be an interesting market, but I, I wonder if it being a, a uh, buyer's market will we'll keep it down, and, and then the, these teams will see that these prices aren't great, 
and then want to keep a lot of their best assets. But I can't envision a scenario where Machado isn't traded. So we should at least get the one big move. And if he goes to the National League, that'll turn a lot of leagues upside down uh, with, the Ameri- with, with him coming over to the National League, if that happens. You said you don't trust Baltimore or the Mets to make the right move, and you said you don't expect the Mets to trade DeGrom or Syndergaard. If you were the Mets, Jim, would you trade either of them or both of them? I'd certainly be open to trading either. Um, if the right deals came along, I could see trading both. You know, here's the thing, though, too. We can't, it's not a video game. We can't just say that uh, they shouldn't take anything, um, you know, from the fan side or, 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 or how it looks into consideration if they trade both of those guys in season uh, it could be a bit of a PR disaster even if they got good deals and I'm not saying that they should play scared and not do anything because of that but I don't know that I would dismantle the team in in season I I also think that you're they're more apt to get a better deal I think um, in the offseason for for guys like that but we'll see. I don't know what kind of offers they're getting. I would be open to trading DeGrom specifically. He's 30 years old. He's been amazing. I think he is an ace that you can actually, uh, you know, really get an, uh, a major haul for and really turn around that farm system in one fell swoop, um, just as they did when they traded Dickey and ended up getting uh, Syndergaard in that deal. That He's the one I'd really be interested in. He's leading the American uh, in all of baseball in ERA, um, and, and they're not – he has five wins because of it, because that team is, is a nightmare. And listen, um, you know, wins obviously are uh, clearly not an indicator of skill, and we see that with DeGrom. But it would be interesting to see him go to a, a playoff team, and, and if he continues to pitch like this, I feel like he would win almost every, uh, you know, every game out. Uh, so that would be interesting to see. I would be open to it if I was running the Mets. I, I would not shut it out entirely, and I would focus on DeGrom because he's also healthy, and I think he'd get the best return. Well, from your lips to God's ear, I've got the hammer in my American League only league, and I could sure use uh, Jacob Degrom. I'm surprised that that so many uh, pundits and people talking about the situation say that the Mets are not interested in trading them. The Mets themselves are saying that a lot of maybe more noise than news there because they're quietly working behind the scenes. But uh, I agree with you; they could rebuild a, a put a pretty good farm system together with just the haul off of. Uh, off of Jacob deGrom, but then they face the trouble of who out there has enough prospects to give up that could make that kind of difference that would be willing to give them up and and is chasing a playoff spot right now. It's a kind of a limits the uh, limits the market to a certain extent. Well, and especially with, with a guy like a deGrom or, or even a Thor, if you're doing it, there's a, there's a good chance that it's going to involve somebody who might already be on the roster and then, you know, so you're, you're, you're adjusting the roster. Yes, you're getting an ace, so it, it's helpful, but then you're having to make the changes with the guy that maybe you trade off the roster. And if it's not a pitcher, if it's a hitter instead, then you have that. That's why I think something like a DeGrom trade is probably better for the offseason, uh, but they should absolutely be interested in, in trading any and everything this offseason to kind of rebuild because I'm just not sure that they have the horses. Even if DeGrom and, and Thor, even if you guaranteed them uh, you know, a, a measure of health. I don't know that the team around them in New York is enough to to suggest that, that one of them shouldn't be traded. So I really think they should be uh, very much open to it. It might be hard to do it on the fly. Fine. But do it in the offseason then because uh, they've got to make some moves here. It's, it's a nightmare, man. I, I get worn out just uh, just kind of following the Mets. I'm not even a Mets fan. I don't know how Mets fans could do it because it's, it's tiring just following their existence without even being a fan.
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. And Paul, during the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about players you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. We'll start with the boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners for the rest of the year in the American League. Who's a hitter you think could be a boon? You know, I'm interested in a in a buy high situation here because, especially right now, because he's been really great. I love Aaron Hicks. I think he's an all-star level talent and, and pretty much has been throughout his career. Injuries continue to get in his way, and I, I understand that's a concern. I also think that will help keep the price down if you go out and get him, though, um, because you can you know, point to that and say, listen, I'm, I'm willing to buy here and, and, and pay a substantial price, but I can't pay the top, top dollar to maybe match his numbers because I can't you know, be reasonable that he's going to get, uh, that he's going to stay healthy. He has one season over 100 games. So that is a little bit of the, of the concern there, but that's kind of factored into the price as far as I'm concerned. I love the talent that Aaron Hicks has. So I'm going to go with a buy high situation there. And you know what? The other day I saw on uh, somebody's Twitter feed, uh, Aaron Hicks's last calendar season uh, going back into last year. And to say he's approaching Mike Trout is maybe overstating it a little, but Aaron Hicks has been really good for the last full season. So that's a great call. Uh, how about in the National League, a boon hitter? Uh, this is an interesting one, but I, you know he continues to put up the fantasy production. So I'm going to go with Ian Desmond, I understand the reasons to be skeptical because of the weird, it's a, it's a really bizarre batted ball profile, and it has led to a pretty crummy flash line. 223 average, 299 OBP, sub 300 OBP, Patrick, I understand. But 437 slug, he's got 18 homers and nine steals. And again, you know, if you know, everyone knows their team better than, than, than we could. So make sure you have the team that can handle the potential batting average sinkhole. But I say potential because I could still see him surging with the batting average and hitting maybe 270 the rest of the way. I know that's a surge, but that's, it's a surge from 223 um, with the power and speed. So I think he's somebody that teams that have him have been just kind of gritting their teeth and saying, well, I have to keep him in the lineup. I think he's very gettable. And, and so if you need somebody that's just putting up counting numbers and you can kind of plan around the batting average, I say go out and get uh, Ian Desmond. The batting ball profile is really weird, but it seems like it's the kind of thing because in his past uh, parts of his career, he's been more of a line drive hitter, and you'd think that that could happen any time, factor in the ballpark, and all of a sudden, uh, yeah, it's easy to see him hitting 270, 280 the rest of the way, and if you acquire him now, you're going to be the beneficiary of a, uh, of a batting average gain, actually. Uh, over to the pitcher's mound in the American League, who's a pitcher you think will be a boon? You know, I like, a, I like a young guy over in Cleveland, Shane Bieber. I like a lot of what he's doing. He came up, and the, and the thing that we kind of knew about him was a real, real good command and control guy. doesn't walk anybody, really. And, and we've seen more of the, the control than command, and I make the, the distinction on purpose. I think control is kind of being able to fill up the zone, and then command is kind of putting it where you want, whether in the zone or out. And we haven't quite seen the, the, the command there. He's still adjusting to the big leagues. He's given up a lot of hits. But he's worked around that trouble and still put up quality numbers despite a pretty high hit rate right now. Some of it his own doing, some of it some bad luck with, uh, I think, some cheap singles kind of falling through. And that's anecdotal from a couple of the starts I've watched. But the bottom line is I don't think he's going to continue to allow 11 hits per nine, especially with the other skills that we're seeing. And he already has a 347 ERA despite that. So I look at the 347 ERA and the 140 whip, and I think between those two, the whip's the one that's going to come down. 
Whenever you see kind of an offset ERA whip combo, I like to investigate and figure, was the ERA going to go up or is the whip going to come down? For me with Shane Bieber, I think the whip is going to come down. So I say go ahead and buy him for the second half. Um, I don't know that he's going to have – it's going to be fully uninterrupted. Going back to the innings limit situation, I think there, are, uh, there could be a skip here and there. But for what you're going to pay for him, to have maybe a couple of missed turns – uh, might not be so bad, but he's also not a huge danger guy either. He threw 173 innings in the minors last year. I don't think that they have to be super, super careful with Shane Bieber. So maybe a skip here and there uh, to total. I wouldn't think too much more than that. So I like Shane Bieber. This raises an interesting point, Paul. You say there's a disconnect between ERA and WHIP. We know that one of them is going to correct. You believe it'll be WHIP. Does he also realize an ERA improvement because of the pending improvement in WHIP, if that turns out to be the case? That's certainly something that I could see. But even if he maintained a 347 you know, or something in that general level while bringing the WHIP down to, say, 120 or better, perhaps, because he literally does not walk anybody. He's allowed six walks all year in, in his 36 innings of work for Bieber. Um, so, yeah, we could easily see an ERA improvement with it. That's, the, that's where you start talking where he could be special at that point then if he's allowing, say, a sub three perhaps. I, I don't think it's on the cards. I would not project it if you're saying give me a projection. I'm going to say let's keep the ERA about the same, but let's get a whip more commensurate with it. So like a 340-120 uh, sort of combo with the upside for more for Bieber. And in the National League, who's a pitcher who could be a boon? Well, this is what I meant with the foreshadowing earlier. It is going to be Nick Pavetta. I'm staying on the trainer. Uh, I kind of outlined some of the reasons why earlier I look at the game log. I see a few major blowups, and, and again, those count, those matter. But for me, I, I, I like seeing that a lot more. I, I know it sounds weird to say that, but I like seeing that a lot more than a guy who's just consistently, you know, if your 462 ERA is built up on a bunch of five-inning and three-to-four run uh, outings, I'm not as interested. Like you're kind of you're kind of grinding it out. You're solid, but you're not really having the spikes of greatness. We are seeing the spikes of greatness from Pavetta, and so I think that if he smooths it out and and, and avoids those those nightmare starts, he's go- going to be really good. In fact, he has been at points throughout this year. If you look at you know using the arbitrary months again, you look through the first two months, he had 11 starts of a 3.26 ERA, and then uh, and then and then. Washington started to come into the picture, and they hit that second shellacking with him. He also had the Colorado start. The Colorado one and the second Washington start were both in June, and those ballooned his ERA. Um, I think the break comes at a perfect time for him because he is kind of making his first grind through a major league season. Uh, He threw 133 innings last year, but this is going to be the full six-month slug. So get some time off, recharge, and I think Nick Pavetta is going to be somebody to have uh, the rest of this year. Paul Sporer's Boons, Aaron Hicks of the Yankees, Ian Desmond of Colorado, Shane Bieber of Cleveland, and Nick Pavetta of Philadelphia, good Canadian kid. Uh, let's move over to the Baines. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be more cautious as we get into the second half. Uh, in the American League, who's a hitter who could be a Bane for owners? You know, I'm not, I'm not going to lie here. I'm having a, a, a tough time really identifying, you know, from the from the top performers, guys that I'm that I'm gravely concerned about uh, the rest of the year. So I'm going to go a little bit more on, on the health profile than I am skills and say somebody like a Michael Brantley is somebody that maybe I'm open to trading at this point because I've gotten a, a, a half season of, of quality work from him. 
uh, at, at a pretty great cost, right? You know, Michael Brantley was not somebody that folks were out there front and center getting. He's an all-star, uh, 11 homers, five stolen bases, 307 average. He's performing at Michael Brantley levels. But the health has been a major problem throughout uh, the last few years. Um, and, and similar to last year, you know, he had 90 games. They were very similar to this. He was good. He was also an all-star last year, but he only played 90 games. So maybe I let go of that hot potato before before anything changes and I have to worry about about him getting hurt. So it's not so much skills. I do like Michael Brantley's skills, but if I'm fading anybody, I'm going to jump off that train and see if I can trade him because I think I'm going to get something pretty substantial. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a bane for owners? Patrick, I have never, never liked Billy Hamilton. And I know he's been hitting a, a bit better of late, and you're finally getting some of the steals that, uh, that you so rightly deserve. That's just a guy I'm always looking to deal if I've got him. Now, it may be tougher this year than most years because by now you were probably expecting to have 30-something steals in the bag, and I think he's just over 20 on the season. But I'm always looking to deal that guy. I just... I don't know. I, I don't draft these guys. I, I, I did draft him at the first pitch Arizona almost as a test to kind of see if I could make it work with, uh, with him and Chris Davis. I took them back-to-back, back, so let me get the, the flawed but great power guy and then the, the uber-speed guy, and they both hurt you in other categories. Let's see what can happen. Well, spoiler alert, that team is not doing all that well. Uh, and so it was a one-time experiment with uh, Billy Hamilton, and I, I refused to pay up for those guys in most situations. So he's finally performing. You can finally get something substantial, I believe, because I think he's hitting like 300 plus in his last uh, month plus or so. So I'm moving on from Billy Hamilton. I saw an analysis the other day, and it wasn't at Fangraphs, and it wasn't at HQ, one of the other places. I read these things constantly. It's like an addiction. And uh, the, the point that the analyst was making was that Billy Hamilton might be the kind of guy who could get traded, and that if he did get traded, it would probably be to a team that really wants him to steal bases, in which case, if he got back on his Billy Hamilton pace, you could really score in the stolen bases category if you're willing to take all the, all the uh, jetsam that goes with it uh, with Billy Hamilton. Well, that's the, that's the interesting thing here, and it, it, it might sound like a contradiction, uh, and, and perhaps it is, but I'm also open to the idea of trading for him, even though I'm telling folks to, to move on. There are going to be a lot of scenarios. I, I'm much more comfortable trading for a Billy Hamilton than I am drafting him. The reason I don't like to draft those guys is because I think you have to fundamentally change how you draft from that point on. But similar to what I was saying with Desmond, if you have a team that can kind of absorb the, the god-awful batting average that, that you're, you're nearly sure to get, with somebody like Billy Hamilton, and you just need the speed, then by all means, he might be the right fit for you. Maybe you're the one that's actually trading for him, and you find somebody that listened to this and said, well, Paul Spore said I should trade him, so he's going to trade him, and he trades them to you. I, I can see both sides of the fence on this one. I just think that you're finally getting some good production out of Billy Hamilton, uh, where his numbers are on the uptick, that you can actually trade him and you won't have to uh, be, be kind of held over the barrel and, and not get anything in return. Because if you were trying to trade Billy Hamilton back in, in May, nobody was offering anything. They, they, were, they were giving you laughable offers for your you know, fifth, sixth-round pick. Yeah, I think the ideal situation might be if he gets traded somewhere where he's pretty much a pinch runner and late inning defensive guy and doesn't get to swing the bat that much because then he can't kill your uh, batting average or on-base percentage, whatever you use. Uh, moving to the pitcher's mound in the American League, who's a pitcher who could be a bane? This is one of those where it's like a, a, the fantasy side, 
I'm uh, I'm out, but the the player I actually like, Marcus Stroman, I, I like what he does. Um, you know, seems like a good guy, good pitcher, but uh, I, I'm fading him here. And listen, I understand that this one might be easy because he doesn't have great numbers right now, but I've seen kind of the, the fantasy interest spark back up because he's healthy, and I think his first couple starts were pretty good. For me, I was out on him from the start this year, and it wasn't so much the health. I don't like that team around him. He's a heavy ground ball guy. He needs an infield defense that can turn those, those ground balls into consistent outs, and I don't really think that they have that in Toronto. So he was a guy that even if he had guaranteed me perfect health for, for Marcus Stroman, I was going to be moving the other way on him just to begin with, just from that angle. Uh, because who's a good defender that they have on the infield? They're just they're they're pretty bland to bad, uh, depending on what, what where you're looking. So for me, I just I don't see them turning the the 60 plus percent ground ball rate into enough outs. He doesn't miss enough bats uh, strikeout wise. And despite again a few good starts off the DL, I don't see it with Marcus Stroman. I would wait till that next great start and uh, and and move him immediately. That's a good call about the uh, Blue Jays' interior defense. It's pretty poor. Uh, finally, the National League, who's a pitcher who could be a bane? I don't like what Jake Arrieta's got going on right now. And so, um, again, and this is another one that I was out on from, from Jump Street here to start the season. And, listen, he's, he's been pretty solid. If you got a 347 ERA and a 125 whip, no one's really complaining about that. But he's dropped a full two strikeouts off of his per-nine rate, his, his Strikeout percentage has gone down too, but I'm looking at a page that has the per nine. He's gone from eight seven to six five. I mean, that's terrible. That's that's a hindrance at this point. And if you're in an innings cap league, that's a major hindrance. He's eating up innings, um, and it almost becomes a K per nine league at that point. And so you really got to move on from Jake Arrieta. I, I just I don't see uh, any sort of resurgence to where the name value is going to carry more weight than his actual talent. I know he was great his last time out. He's been pretty good. Uh, lately, I think that's setting up an opportunity to go ahead and sell Jake Arrieta for me because I'm out. Paul Sporer's Baines, Michael Brantley of Cleveland, Billy Hamilton of Cincinnati, Marcus Stroman of Toronto, and Jake Arrieta of Philadelphia. Well, Paul, this has been a treat. Uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Paul Sporer. They can follow me on Twitter, at Sporer, that's S-P-O-R-E-R, can't spell my own last name. Uh, fan graphs I write or, or podcast uh, five days a week. And I say the week it's not always monday through friday because uh we do some weekend work like i said the pod comes out on sunday and i do some saturday work so there are mondays often uh it's, it's kind of an off day at fangraph and then it kind of runs tuesday through through the weekend there and then i also uh stream on twitch twitch.tv slash peace 424 it's a video streaming service where i play video games people come in the chat we talk baseball it's it's basically baseball non-stop there so uh, I know the idea of watching someone play video games uh, is jarring to some folks. It was when I first kind of discovered the platform, but we built a really fun baseball community, so I encourage people to come check it out. Hey, I've seen video footage on YouTube and on uh, regular television of 50,000 people sitting in like football stadiums in Asia, particularly watching guys play video games. And here in North America, they're, they're filling hockey rinks in areas where the hockey team can't fill a hockey rink. So uh, I think there's something to eSports and maybe you're getting in on the ground floor. Exactly. And it, it is absolutely something that I've watched kind of uh, explode the the Baseball, video game baseball community isn't quite as big as some of those other games, but uh, it, it's a burgeoning market for sure, and, and a lot of people are open to the idea of watching it as entertainment as anything else. You know, you watch a show, 
Um, it's not that different. It's, it's, again, a jarring concept that people write off the top, but then they kind of get into it and they realize, oh, this, this does make sense as entertainment. It's just like watching the show. Well, we were talking about other podcasts we listen to. I listen to Bill Simmons quite a bit, and he was talking with uh, one of his regular guests, Chuck Klosterman, who's a really fine writer, and they were talking about whether uh, whether baseball has a trouble attracting young fans, and, and Simmons was saying it, it does, but maybe this is a path to getting those young fans back because theoretically a, a 16-year-old kid who can't afford to go to a ballpark but who can play video baseball will grow up, get a job, and want to go see the real thing. I, I completely agree, and I also agree with the with the point that they're not great at marketing their game, and that's a big problem. They absolutely need to market the game a lot better, and, and getting into frivolous garbage of shutting down people who are putting up gifts of your game, uh, you know, on Twitter is is absolutely silly. They need to be embracing stuff like that. And uh, thankfully, they remedied that. I'm referring specifically to the pitching ninja situation, but there's been other people. Baseball ha- does have a marketing issue, and that's where they're grave- gravely losing to NBA specifically, uh, but even football, which tends to succeed in spite of itself. But NBA is doing it the best as far as marketing and embracing the new technology and, and, and gathering fans that way. And baseball, they can do it. Like, it can be done. Like, I understand it's a slower sport. It is. I love baseball as much as anybody. I'm not above saying that it's boring at times. It absolutely is. But I also think every sport can be boring. I, I find football, watching full games, remarkably boring at times. So it, that shouldn't be a hindrance to a good uh, good game and marketing it to, to young kids. I, I don't think that should be a hindrance because every sport can be boring uh, at, any, at any moment. Baseball is fun and exciting often, but the, they don't do a good job of showing that to the, uh, the younger fans. Uh, the newspaper columnist George Will, and you can say what you will about his politics, and I'll leave that to everybody else, but he's a real big baseball guy. He's involved with uh, the uh, executive of the Baltimore Orioles, I think, and San Diego for a while. And uh, he said of football once, uh, it combines the two worst elements of American life, extreme violence punctuated by committee meetings. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> great. That's a great way to put it. Uh, no, I, I totally agree there, and... Uh, it's an open landscape right now in, in sports. Football is still at the top, uh, but baseball and basketball, if they make the right moves, they can they can push upward and, and really close that gap, but they need to be open to these uh, to these online markets and different things to, to show to show the younger fan bases uh, that, that their game is worth getting in on. And I, I teach at a local college, and I'll tell you something else that's really starting to pick up some momentum is soccer, and not just because of the World Cup, but uh, here in Ontario, the Toronto FC won the championship last year. The, the, uh, foot, the uh, TV ratings were fantastic. The, uh, they can't, there aren't enough seats in the stadium, and I think that's happening in North America all across, especially in some markets. It's been terrific, and uh, I think soccer is something else that we have to look to for a model of how to, how to run an entertaining sports business. Uh, Paul, thanks a million for helping me out. I really appreciate it. We'll talk to you again uh, hopefully later this season on the pod, but for sure at First Pitch Arizona in November. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me on, and I'll, I'll see you in a few months. Paul Sporer writes and chats for Fangraphs and hosts the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. When we come back, our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Master Notes, next on Baseball HQ Radio. I'd like to do something called baseball and football because these two things are such a part of our lives, these two activities, and yet they're so different. The objects of the game is quite different. The object of the game in football is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, 
to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. I'm going home. I'm going home. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say, Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Great to be back with you, PD. In your Z-Files column at Rotowire this week, uh, you talk about something that I think is really important, uh, and it's also going to be the subject, I think, of the uh, Tout Table um, All-Star Break Edition, and that is, with the break coming, we have to start thinking about what we're going to do post-break to maximize our team's chances, optimize our team's chances for the stretch run. And uh, the first thing that you noted, and I think it's really important, is the break is later this year than usual, so we have less time to react. Yeah, not only is the break later, remember the season started, you know, a, a series got in, or, you know, a seri- and, or, we started on Thursday, Thursday or Friday. So teams played three games, be- you know, an early three games in March. So I don't know what the, you know, Major League Baseball must have had a reason. Maybe they didn't want to get too close to the fourth weekend. I don't know, the fourth of July weekend. But yeah, it, you know, normally we think of around 90 games played by the break. There's going to be an average of 96 games played by the break this season, and it's just it's one less week to make up ground or to think about. You know, people use the All-Star break to to gather themselves, which just makes sense. It's just one less week to to make up ground that people are forgetting about. They kind of think the trade deadline, the 31st, it's the, the same amount of time every year, but it's uh it's the the break is a week closer to the deadline than normal. So, yeah, we're losing a little time. It just means you just have to make be that much more uh, not so much accurate, but but uh, you know you, you don't you, your margin of error is reduced when you have one less week to work with. And that seems particularly true in the ratio categories. Uh, the denominators are bigger. The amount of time we have to accumulate at bats or plate appearances or innings pitched is reduced. And yet you say we really can continue to look at managing the ratio categories because a time, while it may not be quite as on our side, is not so much against us as people seem to think. Yeah, that's, it's, it's you know, you're, you're familiar. This is one, one of my crusades. I believe I've written about, written about it in the forecaster, too. If people sort of just categorically ignore the ability to gain and lose ground in the ratio categories, um, you know, this this is sort of, it, it starts out being empirical in that following standings, specifically in F- NFBC, because their, their commissioner service uh, tracks the daily movement within each category. There are other services that do too, but, uh, you know, it just, the, the NFBC tracks the daily movement within categories, and even up until the last week of the season, there is just more movement in ERA, whip, and batting average than in the other categories. And I just, when I, like I said, when I first saw that, it was like, wow, that's just so weird with all the at-bats and the innings pitch, especially the last week of the season where you're you're almost maxing out. So I just, I, I sort of back, you know, reversed engineered or did a little research on it. And there's a few reasons why it's the case. And the uh, one reason being is 
the you can gain points in pitching categories without even having any of your pitchers pitch that day simply because somebody else's team could have poor ratios and they can fall back to you. That doesn't happen in the county categories. Now, you better be having hitters hit or else your team is kind of sad if you don't have any hitters in your lineup that day. But the point being you could also, you know, the other team could uh, have a poor batting average day and fall back to you or you can have a really good one uh, and, and, and jump ahead. But the point being... Uh, it's 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 not any harder or easier to you should not ignore the ratio categories. I also do some research that shows that they're more bunched. The top to bottom distribution and the ratios is more tightly bunched. So while it is harder to move the ERA and move the WHIP later in the season, it doesn't have to move much to gain or lose points. So it's just uh, the, the 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 take home message is don't ignore it. You can make some moves. You can use relievers. You can make a trade. You can get an ace. There are ways that you can improve the ratio. So when you're doing the category math, don't just sort of dismiss those. Yeah, it's not worth thinking about ERA or WHIP. It is worth thinking about it. You can gain or lose points in those categories as well. Well, you mentioned you can acquire a, a player to help, an ace pitcher or a, a a big slugger or something like that through the trade mechanism, assuming your league allows it and your fellow team, uh, fellow league mates are willing to make trades, uh, decreasingly so in my experience. But uh, if you can make trades, this is where you have another um, another common mistake people make, and it's the last one you list in the uh, column, and that is too often, and we've talked about this a lot too, Todd, uh, too many fantasy owners are focusing on the value of the players involved and not the standings impact of the players involved. Yeah, and I think, you know, as as we go deeper into the season, I do think this is, it's less and less people actually do this. You know, my one of my arguments is you know this shouldn't be done early in the, you know early in the season. It should be how help players help your roster. But yeah, the the point being, and we you know we want whichever of us gives the example. It's usually a you know trading a a high stolen base guy who rates high on a value meter for a lesser you know power hitter or or, or or something to that effect. And if you look at current rankings or projected rankings, there's a huge disparity within the players. But due to the contributions, each team is improving their standards place and you know therefore it's a good trade now I mean the, the not so much corollary but the, the, the you, you do need to ask yourself all right I'm, I'm trading away a, a really good player you know in parentheses big value player could I get more stats back could I get more of what I need and and make the equity make the value equity closer and even help my team more but if the answer is no and this is not a market for that player and you're improving your team then the trade is a good trade, and don't get hung up on the value. Now, the other issue here, though, is a lot of leagues will uh, veto deals based upon the value. They don't, whether or not they don't understand that you need to look at the standings, or they don't want to do the work, and it's just so much easier to go to the ESPN Player Rater or whatever rankings you like. The rest of season values on HQ doesn't really matter. You know, whatever you use as your as your litmus test, your measuring stick. And this guy's ranked 12th, and this guy's ranked 20, uh, 72nd. That's an unfair trade veto. Um, you know, that's that's the the corollary. The two owners may actually know what they're doing and uh, agree it's a good trade. But the, <laughs> some leagues have a veto system, so it's not just trying to convince people making the trades. Trying to convince people that are uh, in leagues that have this uh, this this judgment capability, which 
you know, we can, you know, argue in March or February whether that's a good way to go or not. It, you know, it is what it is in many leagues. And, uh, and you know, so hopefully everybody should be educated that the tra- a trade should be how it affects the teams in the standings, not the, the, the names and the reputations of the players involved. I'm actually familiar with some leagues where that's built right into their constitution or into their rule set that if a trade is made, that even if everybody in the league understands the rationale for it and, and agrees with it, if the if one guy is the 12th guy on the player raider and the other guy is the 72nd, you just can't do it. It's just not allowed for whatever reason. Back in the day, right. the, this league has set up this set of rules and then, and then you can't. In which case, all I can suggest is find a better league or get your league together <laughs> and change the rules because that is a bad rule. In keeper leagues, especially where you don't really know about, there's no way to gauge future for present value. Trade should be governed within the whether it be a salary cap or or, or something. Trade should be governed within the rules. If there's nothing in the rules that prohibit the trade, the trade should be good. You know, because there's really no way to you know to to gauge a future for current league and keeper league. So you know, league with a salary cap. If the if the if the if after the trade both teams are under the cap. It's a good trade, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's just so hard. I mean, it's, it's there's so many different leagues and so many different philosophies as far as trading and what's fair and what's not fair. And and the other thing you get is you you don't even get people voting on whether the trade's equal to the teams and fair to the team. You know, it's like, darn, if this trade goes through, my team's hurt. Veto, which you know yeah. is another, you don't want to be in a league like that. But we both know those exist. Boy, do they ever. Uh, another issue that you raise, and this is kind of uh, the flip side of the coin involving the ratios, and that is if you're making a deal for counting stats, you're trying to pick up stolen bases or you're trying to pick up wins or home runs or whatever the case might be, the mistake often that people look at is they say, they look at today's standings and they say, hey, I'm only 12 home runs out of three points. And so they go and try to find some player or a combination of players that will gain them 12 home runs. And the problem is, the assumption is that the league isn't moving while uh, while you're uh, playing out the uh, second uh, well the last third of the season and it is moving and and the the problem is that the teams that you're trying to catch are are still moving ahead and presumably they're moving ahead at the same pace that they got ahead of you in the first place notwithstanding injuries and personnel changes and stuff you have to prorate where you expect to be at the end and then figure out how you're going to amass enough home runs or stolen bases to bridge the larger gap that results yeah, and I think you probably see this too. You get a trade offer, and you know the, the 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 person giving you the making the offer to you tries to sell you on the offer, and they'll say, "Look at the standings. With ten more homers, you'd have you know you'd be in second place." You know, and, and but the the fact is, uh, you know, and therefore you know, and, and the guy I'm giving you is projected to hit twenty seven or seventeen or whatever you know whatever, and you're going to get the ten homers making this trade, but you know their you know their their sales pitch is erroneous just because of that very reason so it's not only do people uh not understand it when they do their the category math but you know the, the reason i see this all the all four of these things we i think we've talked about in the past and i know i've written about in the past but they still occur and i know they occur because i get the offer I've, i just got an offer the, yesterday when i wrote the piece uh about uh, exactly that i you know i I'm not going to call anybody out and 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 paste the paste the offer into the webs into the piece, but I you know it, it kind of reminded me I better include this because it's still happening. But and and as you, you mentioned it too, you have to assume 
there's some movement, but part of what we do, and, and this is going to fall into, again, you kind of dovetailed the, the, the tout table question this week is basically, what do you do at the break to help manage your teams? And you, you need to look at, you know, is does the, the team that, that the team that picked up Juan Soto is probably going to have their home run uh, accumulation be at a slightly higher pace than it looks. Although he's been playing most of the season at this point, but there are players out there. That, that 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 are emerging, that have emerged, and the, the the rate of homers, the rate of power, the rate of any stat on that particular team is going to be uh, increasing. And then there's going to be some teams that uh, you know that, that if, I don't know what the injury to Delano DeShields is, but he he left last night's game, and if he if he's out, that team's their stolen base accumulation is going to wane. So it's not it's not linear, it's not proportional, but yet you can't ignore the fact that there's going to be some growth in the categories too. It's just it's all part of the category math that goes into it. But you know the the thing is, don't fall for a sales pitch. Wow, with ten more homers, I'd be I'd have five more points, and you may only have three more points just because uh, you know the other team's getting homers too. And this raises an ethical question. If you're the kind of player who understands this uh, prorating need and the mathematics behind it, actually arithmetic more than mathematics, I suppose, uh, is it ethical to make a deal by promising this uh, your your trade partner that, look, you only need 10 home runs and I'll give you this guy who's going to get 12, you're going to gain four points when you actually know full well that's probably not true. Is it ethical? I mean, well, if the other, per- if, I mean, if the other person is... If, you, if the person making the trade is naive to this, it just is you know doesn't understand this fact. I'm not so sure it's not ethical. It, you know, would I in those in those instances, especially because if if there's a if there's a counter to be made, if I if I if I if I'm interested in the trade, but maybe not that actual uh, machination of the deal, I'll reply back and I'll and I'll say something like, well, you know, you're right, you know, a few more homers, but. Uh, over the you know over the course of the season, I'm still going to fall short because the other team's going to keep getting them. So I need a little bit more than what you're offering. So I either add another player, or I, I upgrade the player being offered. So I subtly, or maybe not so subtly, depending upon the uh, person and, and my mood, uh, inform the, the my trade partner, my would-be trade partner, that they're wrong in their in their narrative, that their narrative has a mistake. Um, in it, you know, sometimes, you know, I, you don't want to put them too much on the defensive, but sometimes when they're, when they're trying to show that they're so smart, sometimes it's good to let them know you're pretty smart too. So you find a way to let them know that their, uh, their algebra is, uh, is wrong. And, but if you frame it in such a way that, um, well, you're right, I could use more points. However, I need even, you need even more. Sometimes you're able to get a deal and, you know, and, and get the extra player you need to make up the points. Yeah, but my question, Todd, is what if you're the guy originating the deal and you know that the guy you're dealing with maybe isn't as keen or understanding of this of this basic fact? Could you hmm. could you ethically use the you only need ten home runs argument to pitch a deal knowing really that it's a that it's a false offer? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I think it happened. I mean, you can say, what if the person doesn't understand? Uh, batting average regression, and you pitch him on a guy hitting 320 to help your batting average, even though you know he's going to hit 240. You know, I, I think it's uh, I think it's the onus of the of the of, of the people in the league to understand how these things work. And I, I, I yeah, I I don't know that it's unethical. Uh, I guess it, it, it depends on just how far over the line you cross. 
but um, depending on how you know, you don't want to. I, I don't want to. Uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but re kind of make make it look like something is wrong. I mean, I I, I don't want to give a false impression that 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 I'm I'm teaching him something that's wrong. If you're able to make the offer, knowing this guy doesn't understand that this batting average is going to fall, um, I think that's ethical. If you kind of misstate how regression works to the guy, I think that's unethical. So it depends on, I mean, I think you can make it, I think you can play on the fact that the, your trading partner doesn't understand it, but I don't think it's fair, I don't think it's right to do it by, reinf- reinforce was the word I was looking for, by reinforcing what, you know, by telling them, you know, in essence, making them think what's wrong, making them think that's right. I think that you can you can do it without come out and saying, um, you know, that that what they think is right, you know, continues to be right. And the last thing, and I thought this was interesting in your column, was talking about how to use FAB at the trade deadline. And this is particularly uh, true in American or National League only formats, rather than mixed, where there's uh, there isn't that big pressure with guys crossing uh, crossing leagues. And your point is that the, the two or three guys who have the hammer in a particular league are going to get the two or three big names that cross over, assuming there are two or three big names, and that too often uh, the other guys in the league go really, uh, really heavily after the second raiders that cross over as well, or uh, and tend to blow a lot of their fab budget. And your your advice is maybe wait a little because there's still some good players who are going to be either called up by their organizations or moved across leagues after the uh, hubbub has died down and maybe that's the time you want to have the second hammer yep now uh you know you know that i do the fab for labor and tout or do the fab reports for labor and tout or so i see this every year in where um you know, people just list their bids and they just ma- put their maximum amount and just list the players from you know one to ten everybody that crossed over and whatever whoever comes over or you know whichever guy they get they get and they don't lower their bid on the fifth or sixth player because he's, you know, because it's a lesser player. They just want to make sure they get one of the guys. Now, if the fifth or sixth or seventh player is what you need to take you home over the, you know, down the stretch, sure, go get him. Make sure you get him. But if that player isn't going to give you the points that you need, then, you know, you're not going to win with that player. Save your fab and see what happens. Um, Jay Bruce came over at, at a waiver deadline. You know, we, we talk about the July 31st deadline, but we, we also know that there's the August 31st deadline. It's a, you know, you, you, the player has to clear waivers, but a guy like Bruce last year cleared waivers, and there's going to be somebody this year that does the same. And there's, there's always hitters that emerge. Whenever a, a big-name player is traded, someone needs to take their spot. Uh, so there's always players that emerge. Sometimes these guys don't emerge until after the the, the 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 bidding frenzy on the at the trade deadline, Nicky Delmonico is an example last year of a player who helped a lot of players people down the stretch after after the uh, kind of emerged after the trade deadline and uh, Jamir Candelario of, of, of the Tigers was another. I went through and I listed. Uh, I didn't. I did. It's not a complete list. I just listed some recognizable names that had good Septembers just to sort of show that they're there. And the other thing, I didn't do it with the pitching because there was just, you know, what we do in labor and, labor and tout wars is they, is we bid on the two-star of the favorable matchups, then we dump them the next week. But the, the point being, if you want to have the, the hammer, as you say, uh, with, this, with the best spot starters on a week-to-week basis down the stretch, it helps to have the fab there too. Uh, so 
if you if the fifth or sixth best player at the deadline isn't going to be enough for you to win or or move up or whatever your goal is, don't you know just don't do it because you have the fab save it. You know what I mean you may someone may not come over, but you you weren't going to win anyway. So it's just it's it's what I've seen and and uh, you know oftentimes it's more of a more of an accident where the, you know I'll, I'll get you know sometimes I'll get notes from people, you know ah oh, darn I I fell short on this guy I got all this fab left and you know four weeks later after the fab report comes out they they send me another note geez I'm so I'm so glad I had that money left because I was able to get so and so so you just you just never know especially with uh I think there'll be you know more because of the late trade that we talked about how. The All-Star break is so close to the trade deadline. There's already stories about or about how that's hindering some 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 deals already. Uh, I think it may increase the number of waiver deals uh, in in August this year. We'll see, but um, there there could be a. I mean, Jay Bruce didn't go nuts when he was traded at the deadline, but uh, you know, a player like that could come over in a deadline deal again this year and help an AL or NL only team. And finally, Todd, something that isn't in the uh, column itself but uh, popped up in conversation uh, a little earlier was the idea that not all teams are created equal when we're talking about making deals at the deadline. And I'm just looking at uh, the American League only because I play in that format, but um, the Twins have only played 90 games, so if you could somehow acquire a Minnesota hitter for a hitter on, say, the uh, Red Sox, they've played 94 uh, there's a couple of teams. Houston's played 95. Detroit's played 95. If you could swing a deal to get a hitter from uh, one of those teams, uh, to uh, from Minnesota for a, a player from one of those teams, you'd be picking up five extra games for that guy to amass hits. That ain't nothing. Yeah, especially again because we said there's there's less time le- less time left in the season. So on a percentage basis, it's you know it, it's it's a lot. It, it's a week. Uh, in some cases, it's going to be a full week's worth of games. Um, Absolutely, you know Eddie Rosario, Brian Dozier, some someone like that. You're you, you get the uh, the exact, you know, not so much Dozier for Altuve, but um, you know Dozier for Bregman. I don't know. Well, actually, you know, something to the Bregman is probably better than Dozier. But no, the point being, three, four, or five games. You know, who's to say the player plays all five games? But even if play three or four of them. There, that's enough. And if you get a couple of these guys, that's enough. And, co- and not just to mention, we can tie this back into the whole uh, category math thing. If your team has got a bunch of twin, or not a bunch, but if your team has twins on it, if it has some of these other teams, uh, players from teams, the Mets, the uh, the Cubs, you know, there's, there's certainly some some uh, some fantasy quality players in the Cubs. The Yankees have only played 91 games, so if your team and the the Indians, I mean, look look what they 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 what they they, they put up what almost over what over 17, 18, 19 runs last night. We know that they can hit. So the Braves, the field, all these, there's a lot of really good teams that have played four or five fewer games. So if your team is lagging in the in the counting stats a little bit. You 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 eventually will catch up when your teams start to play more games, especially if your the, the team ahead of you has got about a Red Sox on it, has got a lot of these other teams that have played, you know, the full complement uh, the full complement of games. Houston, uh, well, yeah, no, yeah, Boston's at 94, so uh, Detroit 95, San Diego 95, Miami, yeah, a lot of the. Lesser teams have played more games, but you know, there's still there's still fantasy contributors on all these teams. Interesting as always, as I mentioned, the uh, Tout Table Roundtable of uh, Tout Wars players will be up when. 
it will be up on Monday. Yeah, it's again, deal, you know, heading into the break, what what owners should do over the break. It's not a break for us, you know. If you want to win, the, the, the what you know, while everybody else is taking a few days off, what are you going to do with your teams to help you get a, the edge going down the stretch? It'll come up on Monday, which is conveniently just as the break starts. Well, something to look forward to for sure. That uh, that tout table is a real good resource, Todd. Thanks very much for helping us out again this week. We'll have you back on Tuesday for the big uh, round table with you, me, and Ray Murphy, and then uh, again next Friday. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and RotoWire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about my first half all-value team. We're heading into the break this weekend, so it's time for me to deliver my annual all-star all-value fantasy team, a tradition that has been part of fantasy baseball culture since earlier this week when I thought about doing it. First, let me explain what I mean by value. Usually, when fantasy baseball writers talk about value, they mean how many dollars worth of fantasy production the player got, or they mean profit, the gain in production over the cost of buying the player. But to me, value in fantasy terms means dollars of fantasy production and profit. I'd rather have a $30 player with a $5 profit than a $6 player with a $5 profit. So I went back and I got the last preseason projections for all the hitters and pitchers in both leagues, pricing for a standard 5x5 mixed league. Players projected under $0 were placed at $1 to reflect the fact that fantasy auctions don't allow owners to bid less than 0 although maybe we should. Players not in the projections at all were given a projected dollar value of 0 to reflect that they would not be drafted and would get onto rosters after the draft via FAB or waivers. Then I got the players' year-to-date stats and dollar values from the Baseball HQ Stats tool for games through Tuesday night. Then I just subtracted the projected dollars from the year-to-date dollars to get the profit or loss for each player. I added the profit or loss back to the year-to-date dollar value to get a season value, including both actual value plus the profit. Then I ranked the hitters and pitchers separately by value and finally placed the highest value players into a standard 23-player fantasy team with the usual position requirements for hitters. The DH, or utility, was the player with the highest value after all the other positions had been filled. As well, on the pitching side, six starters and three relievers. You ready? Here we go. We start with the hitters, and the top value hitter for the season thus far has been Cleveland shortstop Francisco Lindor, whose value is almost $44. Lindor has been a true five-category contributor, 24 homers, 59 RBIs, 80 runs, and 12 stolen bases to go along with a .296 batting average. There is a widespread belief that a true value player at draft needs to deliver 20-plus home runs and at least double-digit bags, especially in this stolen-base straightened environment. Lindor has reached those thresholds already. He's really good. Even so, Lindor barely nosed out the number 2 value hitter, Boston outfielder Mookie Betts, who had a value of $43.34, just $0.40 under Lindor. And that's before Betts' Grand Slam 5-RBI effort on Thursday night. Betts has had a couple fewer home runs than Lindor, a few bags more than Lindor, and has lagged Lindor a little in RBI and runs, while far surpassing Lindor in batting average, with a three forty six. 
Betts, he's really good too. Next comes Betts' teammate in the Boston Outfielder, Andrew Benintendi, who checks in with a $41.28 value based on a $20 projection, a $30.64 production, a 10.64 profit, and when you add it all together, $41.28. Benintendi has basically been Betts' light. 14 homers, 57 RBIs, 67 runs scored, 17 bags, and a .298 average. Benintendi is the last $40 value hitter. In fourth place, Cleveland third baseman, also eligible at second, Jose Ramirez, having a great year at $39.26 in value. And that's based on a $30 projection, so there's not a lot of profit to be had, but nonetheless, Ramirez has turned one. He was expected to be another five-category contributor, and he has been. But again, it's likely most owners expected 25 homers for the full season, not heading into the break with 70 games left to play. There's a bigger surprise in the five hole for value. Seattle middle infielder Gene Segura has notched $36.86 in value based on a $20 projection. Much of Segura's value has arisen from his 329 batting average, and a lot of experts believe that number is due to sink. When Segura's hit rate regresses from its current level around 37%, or a 370 BABIP, to something more in line with his career 33% level. Another Red Sox hitter checks in at number 6. Outfielder J.D. Martinez has ridden a 331 batting average, 28 home runs, and 77 RBIs to a $36.02 value, almost all of it in production because he was expected to earn $33, so his profit's just $1.51. But you gotta love paying $33 for a hitter who actually delivers even more. The next few value hitters have to be considered surprises, none more than Minnesota outfielder Eddie Rosario. His $34.84 value, based on a $15 projection, includes an increasingly rare and valuable 300 batting average, mid-50s RBI and runs, and even six stolen bases. The lowest homer total among non-catcher value hitters is Oakland second baseman Jed Lowry, whose $34.66 value includes 16 big flies. But Lowry has been uncommonly productive in RBIs, with 67 of those despite his lowish home run total. And of course he gets a lot of value from his low projected value, which has created the most profitable hitter in the first half. The second most profitable hitter, Seattle outfielder Mitch Hanniger, $33.94 value based on a $19.97 production and a $13.97 profit. His line looks a lot like Lowry's, with a few small differences, including four stolen bases. Of course, it's no surprise to see Baltimore middle infielder Manny Machado, who's having a vintage Machado season, a $33.56 value campaign based on a $23 projected value and a $5.28 profit. It includes another 300-plus BA and six stolen bases after he had zero and nine bags the last two seasons. Machado is also elite in home run production, but his poor team support the Orioles sport an MLB-worst 290 on on-base percentage, has curtailed his runs produced. If, as widely rumored, Machado were to end up in the Bronx or some other locale with more productive teammates, he'd almost certainly add still more value down the stretch. We close out the hitter list with something of a blast from the past, Texas outfielder Shinsu Chu in the DH utility slot. Chu's $31.78 value comes from a $6 projected value and a big $18.89 production. 
That, in turn, was based on solid across-the-board stats. 17 homers, 42 RBIs, 52 runs scored, 3 bags, and a two ninety batting average. That put him about 80 cents ahead of Chicago White Sox shortstop Tim Anderson, who's been done in by a two forty six batting average. Anderson will be the subject of my Facts and Flukes Spotlight Analysis next week at BaseballHQ.com. The two catchers start in Tampa with Wilson Ramos at $23.12 in value, a $4 projection but $13.56 in production thanks to useful homers, RBIs, and batting average. The other catcher, Houston's Evan Gaddis, a $20.26 value with a recent spate of homers. Both catchers benefited from the need to have two catchers on the list and from their relatively modest projections creating larger profits. That's the hitters. Moving on to starting pitchers, the top starting pitcher by value, Tampa left-hander Blake Snell at $39.02 based on a $4 projection. Snell has been a long-awaited revelation this year with 12 wins for the struggling Rays and excellent decimals and strikeouts in 116 innings. The number two value starter is Cleveland right-hander Trevor Bauer at $32.54. He had a $7 projection and $19.77 in production so far. Bauer has pitched in some tough luck for Cleveland, especially with their poor bullpen performance, leaving him with just eight wins but excellent decimals and a ton of whiffs, 168 so far. By the way, both Snell and Bauer are top 10 in starting pitcher ERA over the last full year. We talked about that with Paul. Bauer's 258 ERA is fifth on the list over the last 12 months, while Snell is seventh at 265. The last full season ERA leader is also our number three value starter. No prizes for guessing Houston right-hander Justin Verlander at $31.62 based on a $22 projection. This year he's been completely dominant and he's posted a solid profit despite lofty preseason expected value. The surprise of the value rotation so far has to be the number four, St. Louis right-hander Miles Mikolas at $28.84. His value based on solid across-the-board numbers, although with limited Ks. At number five, Verlander's teammate in Houston, right-hander Charlie Morton, at $28.14 in value. Morton has added strikeouts to his wins and acceptable decimals and benefits from a $4 preseason projection to provide a big value bump via the profit. And our last value starting pitcher, probably no surprise, Yankees right-hander Luis Severino has amassed $27.30, almost entirely based on pure in-season value. His preseason projection was $23, so his profit was only $2.15. He leads Major League Baseball with 14 wins, and the rest of his numbers, especially his whip, are certainly ace-level. A 2.12 ERA, an 0.96 whip, and 143 strikeouts. But be a little bit wary of that ERA, as as his expected ERA is a full run higher. Finally, our relief pitchers. The top value reliever this season has been Oakland closer Blake Trinan, whose $32.16 value reflects excellent stats and a smallish projected value. We had him down for $4 before the season started because of uncertainty surrounding the Oakland bullpen coming into the year. Blake Trinan is on a lot of leading fantasy teams. The number two reliever is the most dominant closer in the game this year, Seattle right-hander Edwin Diaz. His $26.28 value was much more expected than Trinan's, based on a $13 projection and a $19 performance. 
but Diaz has created a profit by really getting the job done with 35 saves, a 2.30 ERA, an 0.81 WHIP, and 78 Ks. Diaz's ERA is actually higher than his XERA by 36 points, so he might even have room to improve in the stretch. And finally, if I tell you the number three value reliever isn't a closer, you'll probably guess right away it has to be Milwaukee left-hander Josh Hader at $22.20. That's based on a $1 projection and $11.60 of production value. Hader has earned his value with a couple of vulture wins, a few saves, excellent decimals, and a huge number of relief strikeouts, 85 to be exact. And should circumstances propel Hader into a few more save opportunities, he could add even more value down the stretch. Now, before you get busy writing a letter to the editor or a barrage of nasty tweets, I know that the profit might not be perfectly reflected in the method here because many players went for prices that don't match the BaseballHQ.com preseason projected values. But what can I say? It's a tradition. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 13th. Thanks very much for taking the risk to download and listen to show number 25 of the 2018 fantasy baseball season on such an inauspicious day. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Paul Sporer, from Fangraphs and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. I think you'll agree Paul's a really fine baseball analyst, really knows his stuff, and he's a lot of fun to talk with. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well and as always to Todd Zola, our regular weekly guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. And take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, wherever you get your pod, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that sure helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.